We were scum. Trash. Refuse that didn't fit into the system. Went mad, he did. What the truth was, nobody knows anything. Well, I'll tell you what I know. It's the dumbest fucking thing I ever heard. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. He believed that there was some one of a thousand working stiffs. I thought there wasn't no more. Sometimes we do bad things for good reasons. We'll bring you back after you get your car. Yeah. Hey everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Do it! We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for almost two years. So there are almost, I believe it's 50 bonus episodes yeah. uh, or almost 50 bonus episodes waiting for you if you haven't made the jump yet. So if you haven't, definitely consider doing that. And speaking of which, we have a lot of people who made the jump uh, this week. So forgive me, I'm going to rip through them pretty fast because this is already going to be a long episode without doing this. <laughs> yeah. So Got a lot um, of movies to talk about today. Thanks to Bradley V, uh, Snevins, Simon Ostick, Paul Meredith, Impeach the Paw Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> His legal name. Oh I'm, man, I'm actually That's really, awesome. I'm actually really scared now that I've just realized that people can make accounts and I have to say it on the air. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever want a hilarious ringtone, just make it your username yeah. on Patreon, I guess. Um, Riley Amon, Jake Hartsgrove, uh, Nru, uh, Trace, Sover. Trace is actually a longtime friend of the show. Oh, I, uh, I, I went on his podcast and talked about uh, the Child's Play movies not that long ago. So oh, thanks, nice. Chase, for finally making the jump here at the end of the, the, end of the year. Yes, thank um, you. We've also got uh, Joe, just Joe. Uh, we've got R.C. Barnes, Connor Morgan, and that's it. Oh, and Andrew Gaines, who just signed up today. Oh, sweet. Uh, Thank you very much, guys. That's awesome. Thanks to all of you guys who signed up on the Patreon there. It uh, really helps us out. We we appreciate all of the support and hope you guys are enjoying all those bonus episodes. The other plug for the week, uh, as always, is iTunes or or Apple Podcasts or whatever. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I know, I I see the stats. (laughs) I know you're out there. I can freaking see you. Make those reviews. Scroll down to the bottom (laughs) of the podcast and give us a good old five-star rating and maybe even a review that would be awesome helps us uh find new listeners if you guys do that so we really appreciate you guys doing that as well but those are your plugs for the week welcome back this is the first episode of the new year as always i am josh and that is i'm jamie welcome back yes um this is the official two-year anniversary of sleazoids that's crazy this was when the same time uh in uh 2018 that we recorded our first episode on Spider Baby and the Hills Have Eyes sitting at the table using a single mic. Yep. And we were 
Just amateurs. <laughs> yeah, and I think that episode was under an hour. <laughs> was it? Yeah, yeah. Don't do that anymore. Yeah, since then, the show has almost doubled in length. <laughs> Every week. <laughs> but uh, as we've kind of made tradition on the show, or I guess we are solidifying as tradition by doing it for the second year in a row, Yeah. the first episode of a new year so uh, is going to be our favorite movies of the previous year. We're going to put 2019 to bed. I know everyone has, you know, you've probably already done that in your <laughs> yeah. life. You're already looking forward to 2020. It's understandable. You're already hyping up like Denis Villeneuve's like Dune, yes. which is still like 11 months away, but you're already thinking uh, about it. Probably <laughs> my most anticipated, I think. But before we get on, and we're, you know, Jamie and I decided we were going to put 2019 officially to bed, and we are going to count down, each of us, our top 10 films specifically genre films films that you know are spiritual successors to the kind of films that we like to talk about on the show action films sci-fi films horror a uh, few martial arts films i don't yeah. know i got a couple on my list i don't know what jamie's got but we last year for example we exchanged lists and yeah. we kind of coordinated it but this year we've kept it a bit of a secret so we're going to have some on-air surprises hopefully this year definitely um but there were also a lot of really great genre films that came out this year while Tons. compiling my list. Was I, was, <laughs> I, had to, I had to kill some darlings this year off yeah, the list. I was not happy uh, in a certain way. That there were a couple that, you know, uh, so we had a lot to choose from, and I, I'm assuming it was similar for you guys. But this is always a great episode to listen to because, you know, obviously we're going to talk about some new films that, uh, you know, you guys, the free listeners in particular, haven't heard about. The Patreon listeners get the bonus transmissions throughout the year. So a couple of the films we're going to talk about today, they got like full half-hour discussions on and stuff like that, but... A couple of them are going to be new to them, too. So either way, get your pens and papers out. I yep. guess that's kind of old school. Maybe just go to Letterbox. Yeah, pull out pull out <laughs> your uh, your notes app. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, we are going to talk about some films that uh, hopefully you guys have seen. Some of them are pretty big. But also Jamie and I like to, you know, sometimes disqualify some of the bigger films so we can get some smaller films on yeah. this. So I remember last yeah. year we disqualified Aquaman because we both had a great time with that film. But we were like, does anyone really need to hear <laughs> to more hear about, Aquaman. about the new DC film? It's exactly. like probably not. So we try to get smaller, more sort of underrated films onto our list when we do this. And uh, But speaking of which, I think we are going to uh, jump into. So we're going to talk, obviously, about top 10 films. We're going to go back and forth. I'm going to do my 10, his 10, uh, my 9, Jamie's 9. But before that, Jamie and I are going to both list very uh, – we're going to try to do this briefly. Yeah. We didn't do it briefly <laughs> last year, but we're going to try. We're fucking horrible at that. Yeah. But. but the honorable mentions, I feel like, are even stronger this year, so it's going to be know, even harder. Yeah. So we're, we're going to do honorable mentions, things that Jamie and I both regretfully maybe couldn't fit on the list that yeah. were like just narrowly missed it, just so that you guys don't yell at us. Like last year, it was a bunch of – like three star movies, so this it was a year, little easier. This year I, have a bunch I had of fours. so many that were almost, even, yeah, it was it was brutal. Exactly. Um, so I'm gonna go first, and we're gonna jump into some honorable mentions here. I'm gonna start with kind of the ones on the lower end of my honorable mentions because there's a couple like kind of like underrated threes I kind of wanted to bring up, but I'm sure there's a couple threes I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna be reminded on when Jamie brings them up on his list yeah. too. So, but one I wanted to bring up, uh, the Golden Glove. Oh well. Uh, an Just absolutely a, repulsive disgusting. German serial killer film, yeah. much in the vein of like um, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and like Angst, and it, it, it you know, it, it's very much like those old school '80s serial killer films from the point of view of a serial killer. Yeah, there's no, there's no real fun to be had with this movie mm-hmm. in, in a, in like a 
you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a well-done film. It's entertaining, but you're not going to get any type of satisfaction out of it. No, directed by um, German filmmaker Fatih Akin. It is just, it's probably one of the just the straight-up grossest films that I saw yeah. last year, which, Me which, too. which is kind of what brought it on to my my list because he does like an '80s serial killer film, but he does it in kind of like this '70 German art house style, like the period yeah. detail of the specific time of the '70s, and um, also it's very uh, in the realm of like Fassbinder and stuff like that, like German art house filmmakers, like that kind of uh, sort of period distance to it. Just the and, decay throughout the film, like ugh. watch it. Even, I remember the way that he stacks the, the corpses in his house, yeah. and you can smell them. And then, <laughs> and then apparently, in order to uh, get rid of the smell, he puts just a bunch of like car odor things in the kitchen. So <laughs> yeah, they're just like in, there. like in, like in seven yeah. when they go in and oh, they find yeah. the guy who's been it's rotting. Just, yeah. Oh my god, it's so gross. Yeah, and I just really appreciated that it didn't really try to like psychoanalyze or moralize much about the character. It just looks at this national rot, like this idea of kind of like a Germany that has kind of maybe paved over certain atrocities that they have committed and has, you know, tried to forget about them. And instead you get a bunch of poor people sitting at a bar trying to drink away all of their feelings. And one of those people might be a serial killer who is trying to sort of like kill local sex workers and that. But I just like that it's in tune with... Germany's history of abuse and war and poverty and stuff like that as well. So like it, ha- it has things on its mind while also being just one of the grossest movies that I saw last year. And I watched it because John Waters put it on his top 10. Top 10. It was in his top 10 movies of the year. And the way and, and, I couldn't even like get like I threed it because I couldn't get past yeah. some of this shit. But that's a, I just John Waters, man. What a crazy. Yeah. The way he said it was shame on you for making it. Shame on me for putting it on this list and shame on you if you like it. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> That's the perfect way to put it. Um, so that was on my list. Also, there was this really cool underrated slasher that was like a Shutter exclusive, I think, called Haunt. Oh, which yeah. Which had an awesome face peel in it. Yeah, it ended up being really, uh, really good. I, I, At first, it felt a little corny. Like, the, the dialogue's pretty bad, and it's a little... Yeah. Uh, it, it's cliched. You know, there's a lot of just character tropes that you've seen before. And I would say there's not as much sort of like thematic depth no, even not being at attempted all. as like what's something just like the Golden ride. Love. Like it does truly feel like you're, you know, going through this haunted carnival ride kind of thing. So that that part of it is a lot of fun. Yeah, I really like the idea of it taking place in a haunted house and like the artificial construction of the building and the lighting yeah. and stuff like that. It makes a really good excuse for them to do like these really stylized kills. Exactly. And, and yeah, so like that that one was really awesome and it does it did have some really awesome gore effects in that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also on my list, uh, the last one of the last uh, three star ones I had uh, the the always we got to put one direct video actioner on our list every time. Avengement. Oh, Scott hell Adkins. Yeah. Hell yeah, that was one on of my the too. sickest. Uh, I almost fought it, I, and I might on rewatch. Honestly, yeah, no, it's it's really solid. I watched it a little earlier in the year, and I didn't get a chance to rewatch it, or I might have even upgraded it. It might have stood a chance of making the list because Scott Adkins is really, really good at it. And uh, the one knock I have against it is that I wish there was a little bit more. Like Scott Adkins is an incredible martial artist and athlete. Yeah, and he's there's fantastic. not there's not a lot of fight scenes in this one in particular that like really like they're great fight scenes but yeah. there's none of him doing like the crazy drop kicks and stuff that he does yeah. sometimes a in lot of films. it's very just uh power driven like just these big swinging arms and i think there's oh, yeah. even a lot of there's a couple like wrestling moves too where they're like backdropping people and stuff <laughs> and i always love seeing that <laughs> yeah well because the fights are just brutal and vicious yeah. and they're 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 it's, it's closer to like a direct-to-video version of like chopper or yeah, like Bronson sure. with like Tom Hardy and, and like like it's much closer to something like that and even though it's direct to video it's still like it's got a grid and a texture to it and you just watch Scott Adkins just go full bloody brawls in like a prison in yeah. a 
car, and then, in, a, in a hospital, in an elevator, in a nightclub. Like he's got the uh, the fake teeth or whatever, <laughs> and they're like silver teeth. Oh man, he's such there's such grit to his character. Yeah, and and it, it ends on a ten v one hand to hand combat yeah. in a bar. That's just incredible to watch. It is amazing. So. And it's really well choreographed. Like a lot of the time, you know, it's it's hard to see the 10 verse 1 as a realistic thing. And it's still not. But the way that they shoot it, they do a really good job of choreographing and setting the camera in the proper spots to make it look uh, Yeah, Jesse believable. B. Johnson is the filmmaker. And he's been working with Scott Adkins for like, I think like four or five films now. And I think this is the best one that I've seen them do, which is why I was closest to like foring this one. Yeah. Because sure. earlier in the year, they also did that triple threat, which I think we both watched. Oh, which yeah. Had to that's actually, I think, was, was that, that on your was list? That, yeah, that, I'm and that was, sure. it was also him. He directed yeah, both of those. Triple threats on my uh, honorary mentions for sure. Sweet. Um, I also have uh, Serenity. Oh hell yeah! Which we did a full bonus transmission on talking about that movie broke Jamie and I's mind. I'm gonna yeah. skip over it because I have a feeling Jamie. I I it's I, it's in a weird spot that okay. I'll get to when we start, uh, <laughs> start right. naming it off. Yeah. But yes, if you if you have. Uh, if you ever want to see something that has um, Matthew McConaughey drunkenly yelling about tunas and rum and the Iraq war, uh, while also, I guess, and he's given it living in a video game where yeah. his son is imagining him wanting to fuck his own mom. And yeah, any, if any of that sounds interesting to you, Serenity was a good watch. <laughs> Uh, dragged across concrete, thriller. dragged across concrete. S. Craig Zoller. We also did a bonus transmission on that. I'm going to start going a little faster here because I'm taking to take forever. Um, that one we might see anyway. That one we might see anyway. Um, Chinese filmmaker. I'm going to butcher this. Jia Zhangke, I believe, is his name. Uh, he had a bit of a um, gangster film this year called Ashes Purest White, which I thought was really awesome. Uh, Knife plus Heart. Oh hell yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, was a really good one, which had um, uh, sort of like an Italian Euro horror vibe to it. A uh, little bit of giallo. It had a little bit of cruising in it. Yeah. Um, it involved a serial killer of gay men who used a dildo that had a knife that comes out of it at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and there was and there, one death where explicit. a guy is blowing the dildo and then he has the knife go through the back of his head and it's really disgusting. Yeah, it's nuts. And and it's also explicit in the sense that it essentially just shows like fellatio, like full on fellatio yeah. <laughs> and it's pretty aggressive too and yeah, it's about leads porn into producers. a kill it's just oh yeah. my god. So it's porn people who work in the porn industry being picked off one by one and like the police yeah. not really caring cuz they're a bunch of uh, porn actors and some of them are homeless and live on the street and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, John Wick 3 I don't even think I need to explain that one. Action's incredible. I kind of, oh, yeah. I kind of wish they wrapped up the franchise, which is maybe why this isn't quite as high. I was I, sitting I there, I was sitting there going, "This does feel like they're spinning wheels a little bit more at this point." But when the action's that good, do you really care that they're still spinning wheels? Yeah. It's just, it's not quite two. Which, uh, if we would have been doing this when two came out, it would have been like in my top two films. Yeah. Like I loved two so much. There's a. I, I'm gonna save it because it, once again, I think it's it is on the thing. It's on. Okay, it, it's yeah. gonna come so, up a little bit later. But, uh, okay, but I I do agree with you in a sense. Like I, once it stopped, I was kind of like, oh, they're gonna keep going. Gonna okay, keep, you right. know, I'm fi- I love these things, so I'm fine with it. But I, uh, I I do feel you. But I'll elaborate a little more later. Sounds good. I also have in fabric. Uh, oh, Peter yeah. Strickland, who did D- Duke of Burgundy, uh, he did a a, a killer dress horror movie that's also a comedy it's a bit of a workplace comedy like office space that also meets italian euro horror and uh 
it it basically locates the subterranean horror of like a department store (laughs) in the 70s and and stuff like that like it shows certain scenes show like the power of the dress like one when it just starts to destroy the washing machine and that shot of just that stationary camera and the (laughs) fucking thing bouncing (laughs) everywhere like it almost looks like it's murdering the washing machine it's hilarious yeah so that was good uh i also put the lighthouse uh in the honorable mentions here, yeah. um, we did a full bonus transmission pretty recently on that for any patrons, so you can get a full discussion on that one. I yeah. imagine it's going to be coming up on Jamie's list a little bit higher, Oh, you too. best believe it is. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll save that discussion for a little bit later. I put Jordan Peele's Us in the honorable mentions nice, here because me that was pretty solid. Earlier on in the year, I actually thought it would make the list, but this was such a I good year. That's that. the thing. <laughs> like, I, it's, it's a solid four. I just There are other ones that I felt just were more impactful. Yeah, and I'm just going to rip through these last ones. So I got for Gemini sure. Man, Ang Lee. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Alita, Battle Angel. Yeah. Both of those are a very sort of like a digital yeah, wait effects for the heavy Alita action sequel. films. Yeah, so really excited for Alita once. Sequel. I'm like, yeah, bring me a sequel. And it broke my heart to put these in the honorable mentions, but uh, Midsummer. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, a little more. Which, which Ari Aster, uh, we, we did a full bonus transmission as well, and I did a full review on it. But Midsummer, I, I found really, really disgusting and really awesome to watch and really perverse in how yeah. it gets you into the headspace of Plus the Plus, we had that great theater experience with, yeah, where we, a, with we a couple a basically couple. <laughs> breaking up in front of us because of how awesome Ari Aster is. <laughs> yes. So that was a lot of fun, um, and um, I'm also throwing Ad Astra on here, James Gray, which, oh, yeah. was, which just barely didn't get into the yeah, list. Yeah, it was very close for me. Very moving, Odyssey-esque uh, sci-fi film that has a little bit of Heart of Darkness, has a little bit of Blade Runner, has a little bit of 2001. Describing it now, I'm like, why didn't you put that on your list, idiot? <laughs> yeah. But really, really good film. Brad Pitt gives a really good performance. <laughs> yeah, and we did another, again, we did a bonus transmission on that one where we really talked about how Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones get at the emotion of um, sort of like these these closed-off people looking for simple answers to yeah. problems and then realizing almost in a in a hopeful way that we can't yeah. rely on easy answers. You have to put in the real difficult work to actually yeah. <laughs> make your lives and maybe the lives of everyone else around you a little bit better. I just appreciated how simplistic the overall statement kind of was for yeah. that film, but the way that they show it is just is just great like it's uh yeah and again the way that it never leaves brad pitt's perspective as he leaves earth to yeah. the moon and goes all the way to neptune yeah yeah we get to <laughs> well, and we get to see moon pirates to be yeah moon pirates fucking Some good space stuff. baboons yeah. like <laughs> it's crazy good stuff all right that's my honorable mentions jamie your honorable mentions sweet um so yeah alita was once we already covered that uh oh i lose is it luz or lose 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 that was fantastic yep. that and to be a it was a uh Student a, a, film, a film, thesis yeah, film. That's unbelievable. I could, as I was watching it, we I'm did a bonus like, transmission on that earlier in the year. If anyone hasn't seen it, that is a, I believe, I think that's a German one too. I think right? so. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. German film sure. student just made like an eighties possession film. Yeah. I can't wait to see what this guy Gorgeous, does once yeah. he gets the, the we, feature length. We, we might approach that a little bit later on my list. So we'll beautiful, see how it goes. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, under the silver lake. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the first time I watched it, I, I still enjoyed it, but it didn't uh, hit me all that hard. That the second time, the the just this story of this like lonely stoner, just going about like he, he basically his boredom has uh, gotten to a point where he just needs any type of adventure. So he just starts to unravel this conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's also based around uh, a you know a music group and the music industry in general yeah. to reveal a very very scary uh, <laughs> sort of conspiracy conspiracy right? theory where it's just like. Uh, 
this old man has essentially written every single hit, including the ones that were the rebellious, you know, teenage angst hits, the ones that we hold dear the to punk. our heart. Yeah, the punk Nirvana, movement. all yeah. of it, you know? So it's just... That that thought itself was was horrifying. That, that you but were then, being commodified and sold by yeah. you know, rich people, like but then just your also watching uh, sentiments, maybe. Yeah, and then also watching um, the character just kind of—he's just such a—he is such a loser. But the I just I could endlessly watch him um, go throughout the city and uh, and just uh, discover these little stories, like these characters, and uh, it was. Yeah, the the second time it really really hit me a lot harder than the than the first. Sweet. Um, was that also on your honorary mentions, or are we? Uh, Shadow, uh, Shadow was fantastic. I uh, I wanted to to give it uh, bring it higher in the in the list. It's just the the thing is, is I only got to see it once, mm. and it's the story itself didn't hit me all that hard, just mm. because it's very dry. It's mm. very uh, political, mm-hmm. um, and so. It was hard for me to to feel like uh, I had a lot of passion for it compared to some of the other ones that I had on the list. But the the action itself is unbelievable. It's mm-hmm. so gritty. Like the way that they use environments. Like we were talking, I think uh, yeah, on Jang, our review, Jang Yamu's like Ch- Chinese yeah, uh, filmmaker. We were talking in our review that one scene where it's like he sticks out those those pieces of wood and then just on the kicks the guy, fighting. slides yeah. him into <laughs> it. Just that attention to detail. And then we have like. Guys going down a street and metal Beyblades, basically <laughs> shooting arrows at all, yeah. all, uh, all sides. It's it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, the six action, underground. Oh, just, I'm throwing the it in there. I'm throwing right. it in there because it's just I I wanted to throw it in there because it's one of the first Michael Bay movies that I've seen where I wasn't like pissed <laughs> watching him do all this stupid superficial stuff. Yeah, like watching him do a revolt. In a in a I think it was like a third world co- world country, and they're they're wearing Sprite <laughs> on their shirts and he and films like, it like a fucking this, Pepsi ad. Exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I said. It felt like a, a Super Bowl commercial where you're supposed to feel really good about it, but it's about like but like human, rated the human R struggle uh. and like so it's just. But for some reason, because he went Features, so Features like people's heads throttle, exploding. And right, like, he has no respect for the human body in this movie. And because of that, because he just went for it, I almost, I had respect this time around. I almost wanted to for it because it was just so fucking ridiculous. Yeah, I remember telling you that that was me, where I was going, objectively, there's problems. Like, I was sitting there going, but I was going, I want to give it the four, though. So yeah. I, we ended up, I think, both going with the the, the, the three, three. But that was that's just like one of. I the... almost felt like I couldn't give it the four. Like I wanted to, but out of principle, I just. I Matt, just couldn't Matt do it. Lynch gave it the four and a half on Letterbox, so I feel like that's there. He's, we go. He's doing it for us. Yeah, he's fighting the good fight. But as far as like vulgar plastic, just complete grossness with blood squibs and dubstep remixes, <laughs> it's just like it's a it's an like, Eminem jokes. It's a, yeah, and, and and like troop porn and like all the all. <laughs> <laughs> practical explosions you could possibly fit in and like literal gore gags and, and like, like innocence just die but he never holds on it you know what i mean like you'll yeah. watch an innocent car just blow up you know you just watch somebody die but yeah. he never he never focuses on it so it doesn't allow your brain to really process it and yeah. so you just keep having fun and you feel bad about it but I'm here, you know, I'm having yeah, a good it, time. It, it definitely joins the <laughs> ranks of like the closest Michael Bay has ever gotten to like bad taste masterpiece yes, type shit, exactly. which, which by the way, look, look for it coming up in the next month. We are going to be doing a 
Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2 episode. Oh, yeah. So very excited. <laughs> Stay tuned. Hell yeah. <laughs> Uh, Depraved. Uh, this one was like a uh, basically a take, a modern take on Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah, it was really good. I just thought it was it was a little long, and overall, yeah, it's two hours. It's a bit. Yeah, long. I thought it was too long, and overall, it to me didn't make many new points about mm-hmm. the Frankenstein story. It was just really well done. Connect, connecting it to the um, the wartime stuff, like that, Manchurian yeah. Candidate stuff, I thought was sort of interesting. I agree. This idea of like repurposing like the uh, body parts of like fallen soldiers and stuff to create yeah. a Frankenstein was sort of interesting, but yeah, like, for sure. That's kind of its main new thing that it tries to do. And yeah. like kind of, it's kind of like Silicon Valley, like tech bros who like invent Frankenstein. Yeah, instead of, like, a it mad was scientist. a little bro Yeah. <laughs> it was more bro than Well, because I they take him out to like the nightclubs and stuff and they're like, Frankenstein, we're going to get you a girl. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's definitely worth a watch though. Uh, Bliss. Uh, Bliss. I oh, almost yes, forward actually. It's just, um, I don't, I don't really know what was holding me back too much. It's very aggressive, like mm-hmm. it, to a point of it being obnoxious. And I think yeah. that's the, like the whole point of it, uh, because it's, it's I going really in this very ending. underground punky art scene. So, you know, like the characters are constantly swearing. Like it, it's, I think every other word is fuck in this movie. Uh, <laughs> and they're also, the, the girl has a big substance problem. So she's always uh, kind of teetering on the edge of her sanity, uh, both, when the the ghosts appear, it seems, and then also um, just herself. Like she's obviously been going through a lot of substance abuse throughout, and it seems like she relies on that substance to uh, make art, mm-hmm. which leads to her ultimate destruction, essentially. Yeah, I remember I described it as something along the lines of like if Gaspar Noé tried to do like uh, the mm. Driller Killer or oh, the Addiction, yeah, because because it's definitely got that Driller Killer going out into the night, and like you're feeling like you have um like uh like art like writer's block but like for an artist like that kind of thing and going out and like finding catharsis in like uh creating art out of murder Murder, that's what the driller killer was a lot like for abel ferrera and then the addiction was him doing uh abel ferrera the same filmmaker's driller killer doing a vampire film yeah that's so that's definitely what like the filmmaker here is is going for and i do think that like the driller killer and the addiction are just such good films that someone trying to recreate them i think is just going to be pretty good yeah. my only thing was that abel ferreira is just those films are so good yeah that yeah watching someone else try and do them i was kind of like i respect the attempt but you're not quite there yeah even if some of the imagery is like the 16 millimeter photography is 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 very well done and the final half hour is really abstract and gory very yeah. crazy yeah and i love the way that they use the the painting like as the deaths are, are she's coming accumulating up, bodies yeah and the painting gets more and more something. detailed and and then the end is essentially showing that it's like she got to create her masterpiece but yeah. this is the the cost and yeah it reminded me a little bit of house that jack built like when oh, he's yeah. building his house 100%. and it's accumulating bodies and stuff yeah. and he said it's her painting for sure yeah, yeah. so that was that, great. was that would be on my honorable mentions as well uh avengement which we yep. we discussed haunt which we discussed gemini man uh oh and three from hell three from hell was, was oh yes actually, rob zombie this was like he it's it's odd Rob Zombie spaghetti two, western hangout film yeah the first two <laughs> seem like they were a lot more structured yes. whereas this one he definitely made a hangout film it was like let's just let's just throw these three characters that you know and love and just kind of allow them to be completely unhinged like there's almost no plot really essentially they're just on the run yeah that's that's 
that's pretty much it. And, and one of the best uses of Inagata DeVita in a film since um, Manhunter. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just, uh, he's he's just super gritty. Like, he, this time around, he has no filter at all. Not that Rob Zombie usually does, but there's the, the first two just, like I said, seem more structured. Mm. And this one is a completely just loose canon. Yeah, my only film. thing about it not um, getting a little bit higher was that... Um, it didn't quite have that transcendent ending of I the agree. Devil's Rejects. I agree. Because when they do that Freebird song, and they and they have them driving into oblivion, meeting their own deaths. Yeah. Like like Bonnie and Clyde shit. Like it's Rob Zombie doing like old school American Bonnie and Clyde kind of stuff. And I yeah. was sitting there and I was like, that just blew me away. That's what. And I there's was nothing for. quite in Three from Hell that achieves that kind of high. You see glimpses, but it, but it but was it, fun watching these characters yeah. again and having him. He still found something new to do with them, with having the more hangout vibe yeah. and having them go down to Mexico and. And I do like that he still was able to use uh, Sid because he yeah. passed away he passed before. Away, yeah. I think they could finish the whole thing. I think he was going to play a bigger part than he does but well he, he was also sick too so yeah, like i yeah. think that was part of it too so uh but he he just the fact the that he still got uh, his his scenes and and stayed true to the character was was nice to see um and then we also have uh, rambo last blood i'm putting oh, it on there we I'm go putting it on i uh, just i just loved the the grit i i love uh it does have one of my favorite movie moments of the year was that the ending care, yes yeah hell yeah just i'll rip your heart out it's yeah, just it's just, just, just sylvester stallone ripping the beating heart out of a guy that he has pinned up on his barn yeah and being yeah. like this is what it feels like yeah it's just, oh that's good that's good stuff i do wish that rambo died like not in a in a morbid way just just the kind of like a sacrifice to show what he's been going through this whole time and how he could never escape it it seems like yeah. at the end they kind of just were like he's, he's okay though and i'm like well, i don't think he should be like yeah. at this point it should be game over like watching him destroy his farm house and all that that was kind of his one salvation yeah i think should have been the well, and also character. the way that he's done them like tunnels like back in Vietnam and right, stuff like that. Exactly. Like there's some cool stuff in there. I just it really sucked for me that the all the, like the best stuff was in the last almost 10 to 15 ten, minutes yeah. of the movie. I feel you. And a lot of the rest of the film was like a millennium direct-to-video action film, which is not a big problem. I like millennium direct-to-video action yeah. films. It just it sucks that it's the character of Rambo cuz the yeah, style we're used to I was yeah. honestly I would if it was the same story but like they had stylistically gone in like the bombastic stuff that they did in like uh, First Blood Part Two or something. Like it would have sure. been like higher on my list for sure. For but sure. Just very unfortunate seeing that Sylvester Stallone has to do like direct to video stuff now. It's yeah. just kind of like maybe he should be getting a little bit bigger budgets. <laughs> I think so. Hell yeah. I mean, we saw like Creed, the first one. Anyway, I haven't seen the second, but the Creed, first Creed was unbelievable. Creed is excellent. Yeah. Um. Uh. The fanatic wanted to just throw oh, it out yeah. there because it's just it's so insane. It's not. I'm still struggling whether or not. I mean, it's not a good movie, but when I like something, ironically. It, it can turn into an actual, like, uh, sincere enjoyment. So I'm still struggling with it. It's not the worstly made movie I've not, ever seen. No, it's, it's pretty well shot. I mean, you get to watch John Travolta just be completely insane. Uh, and he just, he goes for it. So I got to respect that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not the most sensitive portrayal of a guy with <laughs> autism you've no, ever seen. not at all. <laughs> and also uh, written and directed by the front man for yes. Limp Bizkit, yes, Fred I Durst. Should, I definitely should mention that. It's directed <laughs> by Fred Durst. Uh, so I, uh, by the way. And I'm at not, one point a character goes, you like a little biscuit? And then he puts on a Limp Bizkit song <laughs> with the kid. Nice. And he's like, yeah. This is yeah, nice. This is nice, yeah. 
Oh my god! It's just like how more obvious can you get? He, it's just, I just love. And then it has a finale that's like S. Craig Zoller shit, where like yeah. he fucking like shoots off like and John Travolta's hand and too. shit. Yeah, like it really does take a left turn with uh with, with his character specifically Hunter. I think is his name. Um. Okay, and then Crawl, which was that alligator yes. film, just great. It was just a solid, cool action movie. Um, with some, with some decent, we always uh, need a good survival film yeah, once a year with some decent character stuff between the, with the father and the daughter, uh, triple threat. I mentioned, uh, Godzilla, the new Godzilla I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, glass, which, uh, mm-hmm. which I didn't get to rewatch. Um, and you did rewatch it, right? And yes. you upped it on the rewatch. Yes. So I do want to say that I, it, it might even be higher than I, uh, I want, I have it here. It's just, I didn't get to, to rewatch it. So it, it might get up there. Um, yeah, Jamie and I are defending the M. Night Shyamalan uh, vulgar tourism angle here, I guess, because yeah. people weren't a huge fan of Glass, I don't think, when it came out yeah, this year. Yeah, it seemed really mixed. It seemed like most people threed it, but yeah. I was like, it, mine was between the three and the four. Yeah, was, when we, when we got out, we both close. liked it, but I kind of needed to think about it a bit more, yeah. and rewatching it and reading some people on it, I was like, that's a much more interesting film than I uh you know, the first time I experienced it. So yeah, I got to rewatch sure. it actually twice. I think for me, it was like, I had kind of things that I had in mind that it was going to be. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, so, yeah. and it wasn't that at all. He really did a subversion. His own so thing, yeah. Yeah. And so I was, I was surprised. I just think because it wasn't what I expected, my stupid brain wasn't as satisfied or whatever the case was. That so I'm going to give it lot. another go. Exactly. Sometimes yeah. you need the second watch, but I think it's definitely worth mentioning because it's, it's awesome. All right. Well, I think that will wrap it up for the honorable mentions, and uh, I think we're going to start. The big boys. We're going to start kicking it off here with the top ten. Now, before I jump into mine, real quick, uh, just going to mention that one film that would be on this list that I kind of disqualified because I couldn't quite justify what the genre would be. Okay. Uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood, probably oh, okay. would have been in the top ten, but I had no idea That's how to int- argue. I, p- I put it in my list so i'm just gonna say that it is okay <laughs> and, and not try to put an argument up for it I'll all right I like well it. i was i was just doing it for that and we'll probably I'll, now i'll get to talk about it because i'm going to talk about it on jamie's list i was just saying that for my list um i disqualified it the same way i disqualified first reformed last year just yeah. because i just didn't like that would have been my number one of last year yeah and then i i just couldn't quite figure out like what kind of box i could put it in but it's always a hard thing to do i did it like and well I'll, I'll explain why i liked it but i think the reason i did it was just because it was there's so much around movie references and stuff of it. Yeah. yeah and i think that that's what it was it was kind of like being on the set of those films that we've been discussing i guess that's pretty much where my brain right. was at Totally fair. And yeah. the only other one that uh, that I'm disqualifying from my top ten, because it's just not a genre film, was An Elephant Sitting Still, the China, four-hour Chinese still gotta watch film, that. which is just phenomenal, made yeah. by uh, Hu Bo, who uh, tragically um, committed suicide before uh, that finishing was his only the film. film right? Yeah, first and last film, four hours, Crazy. and it's an amazing drama. And it's the only film, actually, that was on my top ten that wasn't a genre film. The rest are all genre films. Yeah, so. it's nuts. So this was almost easy for you to make eventually. <laughs> yep, I just had to disqualify. The swap too. Uh, well, since we're doing this, I'm actually just gonna because I I I made my ten, but I had to mention one, so I made eleven technically. Oh, okay, no, no, this is beautiful. Okay, because I was just about to say I did that too. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you if did I did not even discuss this. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if if you're gonna do it the same way I did it, but the way that I justified doing it was that I just have two films in the number ten slot. I can do that too. Okay. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I have two films in the 10 slot. And the reason actually is because they were, um, 
basically they were the next films that took the spot. Yeah. And I really could not decide which one I wanted in the slot. And yeah. I felt every time I put one in and took the other one off, I was like, that doesn't feel right. And then I'd replace them and I was like, that doesn't feel right. So I eventually just decided, you know what, the top 10, the number 10 spot is going to go to two films. And actually, I think these films have things in common and work as a double feature, which makes it even better. Uh, and my two films were Under the Silver Lake nice. as number 10, yeah. as well as the so film close for me too. Relaxer. Oh, nice. So I have them both. I got to rewatch that one. I have both in the number 10 slot. But Under the Silver Lake, obviously written and directed, it's the sophomore film by David Robert Mitchell, who did the film It Follows. And uh, since he did It Follows, it's very clear he moved to L.A. And as is the rule when you move to L.A., your next film after moving there is about how much L.A. sucks. Yeah, you got to critique it. (laughs) So... He did this awesome film where he took like the visual history of noir and conspiratorial paranoia and old Hollywood. He has all these old posters of like Hitchcock films up in his room and yeah. like these old Hollywood monster films. Um, and uh, he takes that and he puts it into his own kind of like polished uh, thriller horror movie. I mean, there's some really gross gore in this, like the dog being pulled apart. And when he eventually smashes that dude's face in with a guitar, yeah. which which we found out afterward was by the effects guy who did uh, like Dead Heat and all that right. stuff like yeah. that too, right? Yeah. So um, either way, it, it, it's very well it done. has Andrew Garfield basically playing like sort of like the Vertigo or the Rear Window main right. Hitchcock guy. But he's like a young millennial stoner kind of like blowhard. <laughs> like yeah. he, he's he, he's very horny. He's walking around L.A. looking at all the gorgeous women doing and auditions. It does feel very loose. Yes. Like, like the story. That's why it didn't work for me almost the first time was because I wasn't sure exactly what it was trying to do. I was trying to figure it out the whole time. You yeah. Know? I was well, like, what is it saying? And I love Andrew Garfield's performance as like like he's the way that he walks around. He has like this like physical comedy energy to him where he's sure. kind of like lurching around and like sometimes he's almost like falling over. Yeah. He just like he's just completely. He's got his limp. skinny jeans on yeah, and he's yeah. you know he's so um and and for me. Me, it it gave me vibes of like body double of the okay, way yeah. that like uh De Palma kind of like did a little bit of like this really horny grotesque like Hitchcock riff this kind of yeah. has like a similar vibe going for it um where it takes on like the enigmatic nature of a guy who uh you know life around him is kind of suck sucks he's about to get kicked out of his uh, apartment he doesn't have a job and instead of, you know, he's being told every day you're going to get kicked out of your apartment. Yeah. And instead, he decides to investigate this murder mystery. That's his thing that he's going to do, which is the same Diaz rear window where the guy is stuck in his apartment. He's just like, well, hopefully someone tries to kill someone and I can get a really cool story out of it nearby looking out my window. Like, it's like he really yeah. just wants something more to happen. And yeah, I really I love uh, it, who's it's Topher Grace's line. Where I think they're like playing video games and it's kind of yeah. saying it's like we do this because we don't have adventures to go on anymore. Nothing. There's nothing left to discover. You know, yes. like you can't be the explorer anymore because it's like the whole world has been seen and, and figured out in a sense. Yeah. Um, so it seems like the movie is just like him just endlessly trying to figure out his next steps in life, <laughs> but he's doing it with just such a nonchalant attitude, just totally carefree. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, and I just really love that the movie, um, which is, uh, you know, a, a pretty like inscrutable, uh, 
like layered with like these absurd kind of like moments um, as he's walking around trying to solve this conspiracy. And he basically thinks that there's like this thing where the rich people are like harboring nukes underground and there's a war coming and like, you know, there's secret messages being passed through in the, in, in the music and stuff like that. And it, it really, the movie engages you know, your the inherent desire that a lot of people have to, like, solve puzzles. Um, I also like that at the end it's essentially just, like, crazy rich people. Well, like, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's like, just it. He's like, what does this all mean? It's just, like, they're just insane. He's looking for <laughs> answers for things in, in the world that don't make sense to him, like this yeah. girl who he had a connection with who just disappears, and he's going and finding her, and he's like, there's these weird connections between like this rich millionaire who has disappeared my this girl that I like who I met once and just like fantasized about and she's disappeared and then like these local bands and like there's something yeah. in, in the local arts industry and there's something weird happening here and he 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 builds up this huge story in his head that there's something so deep and meaningful and there's a maze that goes back to you know the 1930s and I also love old Hollywood and the industry uh, the music industry where they have the that lead uh, singer that's mm-hmm. like you know super good looking you know he's, he's the ladies man whatever and then it reveals that all the songs all his hit songs were brought to him by the record label and said this is now your hit song this yeah. is what you do he's like those are all the singles he's, he's like, like yeah all mine are the ones that are the b-sides <laughs> the ones that nobody listens to and it just i love that that thought that it's kind of like uh you know the 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 man pushing the agenda through through these these artists and and all that. So that was great too. Yeah. So I I, I really loved that, and I think that ultimately he is forced to just reckon with the much more boring reality, which is just that a lot of your life is controlled by rich people who a lot of the time are pretty stupid or, <laughs> and, and there is no larger conspiracy. It is just that that's the way that that's just, that's the way the industry works. That's the way that, that money way. works. That's yeah. the way. So like the, the actual conspiracy just ends up being that like the rich people are burying themselves underground like pharaohs. Yeah. Um, yeah. With three wives, with, with, with three <laughs> wives and the girl that he's after is one of the wives. And I love that scene where he, he calls her down below where she's in the bunker and she's not allowed to escape now. She's basically buried herself for the rest yeah. of her life down there with the millionaire. And uh, she goes, why were you looking for me? Like, do I know you? I, yeah, we had one night together. Yeah, we, I had one night where I watched a movie with you and talked on my bed for a little bit. And yeah. like, you know, he's projected like this whole, you know, fantasy relationship that they had. And again, yeah. the way that it just captures his like, the confusion and ennui and uh, the rage and the violence of like just feeling like you're living in a you don't have control over your life and that kind of stuff and then trying to invent this crazy reality where you do have more control and you can solve the problems and then you're realizing that no just the way the world is organized as is is already kind of crazy as it is yeah and you know we're just accustomed to it we're used to it we imagine it has to be something more evil and worse in fact it's actually just kind of boring yeah (laughs) so the way that it captured that and also the disaster piece score for the film which combines Mm. bernard herman um orchestral stuff like from hitchcock uh with video game sounds as he's like solving the puzzles and shit (laughs) and then also going into horror and stuff just a like for me it was like a really underrated film yeah and definitely underrated 100%. and and for me and especially because it a24 buried it they gave it the the two week in new york and la theatrical the, release that was it it didn't go anywhere reason else the only reason i found out about it was because i was on letterbox and i just looked up the director because i really love it follows yeah and i'm like oh he came out with another film i didn't even know about it and then i yeah. just saw that uh 
Um, Andrew Garfield was starring in it, so I'm like, okay, well, fuck you, I'll watch that. So it wasn't even based on any advertisements, word of mouth. I just happened to stumble upon it. And it's yep. just, it's a bummer because more people definitely need to check it out. Yeah. And then also we all went crazy with the conspiracies like uh, <laughs> later in the year. So it just, it felt, it, yeah. felt, it felt very truthful. It's True. like, no, there's no conspiracy. It's a bunch of rich morons doing all that shit right in the open, yeah. right in front of you. Yeah. So exactly. it felt like a very 2019 movie, even though it was supposed to come out in 2018 and got delayed and release all the way until like the summer of 2019. But I'm pairing it with Relaxer, which is another film actually about a similar guy who feels like he um you know yeah, this it, is like the gross version of it this is more of like the chamber survival movie yeah. version of it because he again he's kind of like this millennial guy who doesn't um feel in control of his life and even yeah, really it also, no, it, no motivation and it also has like an apocalyptic background and it also involves trying to find sort of meaning and catharsis through um uh, solving puzzles like or yeah. in this case it's challenges um which is his his brother is um posing to him and i really liked the lead actor's performance in this film which kind of took it over the edge yeah, for me joshua burge in the film he kind of looks like buster keaton with like the wide eyes and stuff oh, yeah, like that yeah for sure um and for me it was a gross out survival comedy and then it was also like this masculine anxiety chamber drama about, you know, how his relationship with his brother is clearly based on it. Like it's, it's mean spirited. It's very based yeah. clearly on and, um, he, and he paints it to hierarchy of like of like dominant dominance yeah. and, and the um, older brother competition paints it as like a uh, as like a thing that he's doing for his brother. Yes. Which I really he's making him stronger. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're you know, you're too weak. I'm the one, you know, I'm gonna strengthen Yes, you up. he's very clearly an abusive brother, which stems from the fact that also it's implied later in the film that they have a father who is like a sex offender or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and it, what's odd is that he has the best relationship with his dad because his dad was nice on the surface and abusive behind the scenes. And then his brother is outwardly abusive, which he assumes has probably come from the father's, the other side of the father. So it's kind of like the two sides of the father a little bit. Right. But then it's also like this dilapidated, like apocalyptic, like psychological experience that he has inside his apartment where he's stuck. And his brother's like, you have to, beat whatever level two three seven of pac-man which is supposed to be impossible yeah, you can't leave this couch at all no so even to eat he can't get up he's got to like call this dude to like order him food so <laughs> yeah. so he's he's stuck on this couch and, and so, so and then the people that come like make fun of him for being in that situation <laughs> too yeah. but he has to have them come yes and the way that i describe it is that it was check textured entirely with hot couch guy detail <laughs> which is a theory by felix biederman of chapo trap house uh about you know like the, the hot couch guy, everyone knows a hot couch guy in their life. He's the guy that you go over to his place. He's got a leather couch. You're staying the night. He doesn't have a sheet for you. <laughs> yeah. You're, you got you got, you got got bare skin on the leather couch. It's hot. He's got like six fans going. <laughs> trying. But, but it's not working. They're trying their best. In the background, on repeat, he's got the DVD menu of Running Scared starring Paul Walker going. <laughs> and it just won't turn off. It smells like bad weed and bong water. He's got like three different pizzas in the fridge, but like you don't know which which one was the first one you opened up? <laughs> it's you know? just too risky to try any of them. Uh, you know, there's like Mountain Dew stains on the carpet, you know, <laughs> like this is hot couch guy stuff. And watching this movie, I was like, this is a guy who is in tune with hot couch guy stuff. Absolutely. So he's again, lived a few months this way. Yeah. The, like the, the, like the, the movie's got like the smell of like curdled milk. It's got like, he's playing like Tony Hawk pro skater. So it's got like that yeah. pixely vibe to it. There's like Taco Bell wrapping and dried cherry cola on the carpet. There's the glow and hum of like TV static and stuff like that. So, 
for a movie detailed like that, which is just, you know, for a lot of people that like when I was a kid, I would have loved to stay home from school every day and just play video games yeah, all me day. Too. So that like, was and, brutal. so like this was kind of like turning that into a horror survival situation. Yeah. So for me, I was sitting there watching and I was like, that's such a visually inventive thing to try to do. Yeah. I got to give it another go for sure. And just the way that it makes it so viscerally gross um, again, just with some of the, uh, Kenny versus Spenny, like fucking challenges where he's drinking yeah. milk until he basically like throws it up. Um, and the way that it's sad and deals with, you know, sort of like the, his relationship with his abusive brother. And then the way it takes on sort of like nineties video game slackerdom. And then the way, again, it all channels it into, eventually it goes into the realm of like apocalyptic surrealism and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, they go into Y2K and things like yeah, that. Yeah. And, uh, it also takes on a bit of, uh, Bunuelis, um, I think it was called, I can't remember if it's called the avenging angel or something like that, where people are all trapped in a room and they don't know how to get out and stuff like that. But he's trapped in kind of like this circle of relationship with his brother and also this slackerdom. And then also the movie ends with a fucking Cronenberg scanners head explosion. Yeah. Um, to his fucking brother. Yeah. Too. Where, where, which he cathartically purges his brother out of his life. And then he imagines seeing his father and like, it's just God, that movie actually really, really surprised me. And it made a good pairing with under the silver Lake. but I've been going too long. So we got to go. Jamie's number For 10. Sure. Uh, so the first one uh, is serenity. I just, <laughs> yes. I'm doing it. I have to do it. I, I, and this is the thing. I rewatched it because I'm like, I can't just give it the, the, <coughs> the 11 spot, I guess it is, or the, the, the double 10 spot. Because when I watched it the first time, the reason I fought it was just because I was so shocked, so flabbergasted by this film that there was a bit of like irony in me liking it because it yeah. is totally batshit crazy. Matthew McConaughey's character name is Baker Dill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, there's just, it's endless. Um, and I, uh, but I watched, I sat down, I rewatched it and it still hit me that same way. Like mm. the, I will say the first 20 minutes does have, it's, it has plenty of corny dialogue. Yeah. It has stuff like, uh, he, he says something like, uh, I'm a hooker with no hooks, things like that. Like we're talking <laughs> That's straight. Good though. That's oh, good it though. is, but it's also, you know, I mean, it's it's definitely has a cheese factor or yeah. a or or a just a just a the the dialogue can be um, unnatural. Let's mm-hmm. say that. But the thing is, is af- after I watched it the first time, it's revealed that this whole thing is a, a video game built by his son, who's trying to uh, connect with him on some way. Yeah, and so. When I'm thinking that way and I'm, and I'm looking at the dialogue, I'm looking at all these, these weird circumstances like when, uh, uh, when Matthew McConaughey has sex with Anne Hathaway and that's his, the, the kid's mom and dad. And so he's technically playing having sex with his mother. And then when, he, when Matthew McConaughey finishes or whatever, he gets up and he says, I, I win. Won. Yeah. <laughs> and at, when, the first time I was just like, what, what? the fuck are yeah. we doing here? What is this? Yep. But then I realized I'm pretty sure the kid has internalized this kind of like sexual violence because we have Jason Clark's character who, who abuses is just, Anne Hathaway. Yeah. And he's mother, like, yeah. he's, he's written to be the most piece of shit person like ever, like almost unbelievably I, bad. I love his line where he's like, give me the rod. He's an animal in this movie, an absolute animal. And so what I think the son is essentially doing is taking the violence that he sees, thinking that, that the sex 
and the violence is kind of connected to love as well. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why when he, and, and also because he's obsessed with games, so he's he has a win or lose binary kind yeah. of thing. So I think that as I was watching, I'm like, I think this works more than people want to give it. It's yeah. still insane, and I would totally understand if someone's like, this is just too much for me. Well, or, that's just it. Is that it's one of those things where it it's structured like that genius recontextualizing twist that hits yes. at the end of the film. And you have that guy that's the like twist, the rules. I am the rules but the, and all but, that. But the twist hits like 50 minutes into the two hour movie. And that, that's the thing. He's, <laughs> he's not revealed that it's a video game until an hour into the film. And then you still have 40 minutes of him knowing that he's in the video game. And then he starts, this is where the film gets the most interesting. Because well, because the, because then it's just like this, like insanely weird, like Truman Show type yes, film, basically. Exactly, yeah. because everyone else they and, and the thing is, is the characters they're programmed, so they have lines that yeah. they can that they say, and there's only certain things that they can say. And Matthew McConaughey starts to figure that out. So you have several scenes where he goes into like a store or whatever, and then he just like looks at them deep in their eyes and he's channeling that true detective shit at this point where he's like really deep and brooding and drunk and just like this this kind of unhinged animal and uh and he just starts to go like oh yeah do you believe that like it's just looking deep in their eyes like i know the truth motherfucker and all this and it's just it's endlessly entertaining and, and again then you get matthew to mcconaughey point, yells about um tuna yep. he yells about iraq yep because he, he used to be a, a soldier, and assume you assume that he dies, uh, and that's why. And the son has made programmed the a version of him, right? Yes. So he, he he's technically he's living his life as a computer generated in like a weird like Minecraft fishing game that his son yeah. has invented. And one of the best lines is when he's hammered. He's just downing a twenty sixer of rum while driving. While driving, <laughs> he's sweating like, and McConaughey's going for it too. He's not like he's not. Uh, phoning this in at all yeah. he's really believing in this character and it, it it helps so much especially just with how kind of funny and insane the whole premise is to begin with him taking it so seriously mm-hmm. works on so many levels um and the one line where he's he's down in the room and he just goes like oh yeah iraq i was real good at those first person shooters <laughs> and you're just it's unbelievable. And then it gets to Good a realm where, where he's Yeah, Jamie and I watched the, it in the theater in January, and we were hooting and hollering yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I think time. we were the biggest fans yeah. in that theater, 100%. <laughs> uh, and then it gets to the point where he's like actually talking to his son in the physical world as the character in where, the video game. Where he's game. like, it's a really good thing you did that murder, son. Yeah, I will <laughs> good say. Good job on the murder. I will say the morality of the film, a little muddy. A little muddy. But... I still really enjoy what it's doing, um, and the, I love watching really the digital world oh, just yeah. like disappear, like, in like front Inception of him. shit. Yeah. yeah, that was great. So uh, yeah, and and to have this kind of corny like you're the he, only person who put this movie on the top ten probably for the whole think, year. So I respect I, it. I think any. I, I don't think it. anyone else will do it. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm proud of it. Uh, and then it's just like that corny sign off. The uh, the there's a you and a me somewhere. And it's just ah, oh, gets my heart gets my heart going. So yeah, it's uh, Thanks, I, I loved it. Mate. I fucking loved it. Um, the tie is gonna be with uh, knife and heart. Now I think I'd probably put knife and heart a little bit above it, uh, just because knife and heart's a more sincere film, mm-hmm. um, at least for how I perceive it. Uh, right. Serenity is completely sincere, by the way. <laughs> uh, but uh, knife and heart is um it's about we we mentioned it briefly already right uh, yeah so this one is about the uh 
the the gay porn uh, a, a gay porn production company and essentially a in uh, 1979 i think yes yes based in the 70s and a killer starts to go around and and just kind of off the uh the the stars of the film and you also have this director uh who's also seems to be the overall boss of the company as well mm-hmm. um it seems that she is harboring some real violence in, inside her somewhere mm. uh i don't i i i'd have to rewatch it again uh to really analyze it a little it. deeper yeah. but uh but what i what i loved about the film is one this mix between horror and comedy like it's a very funny film oh yeah but it's also goes places that are completely horrifying like it goes to a place where like there's a uh um where when the director essentially rapes her girlfriend yeah uh and it's kind of like showing her possessive nature and then it correlates with this killer who's doing all these killings that are very similar to like cruising where you know they're they're uh, targeting them. They're targeting, and but them. and it's it's sexual at first, mm-hmm. but it's it's violently sexual, yeah. uh, and then it turns into the kills. And I guess the difference between this one and Cruising is just they they go a little bit more uh, creative with how they show the kills. Like we were talking about that right. blowjob kill and and things like that. So it's just it's well. It's I mean, the, the first murder is basically ripped from the first murder in Cruising. Oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to be a direct reference for sure. Yeah. Um, you can tell that that's what they're going for. And I, yeah. I, I liked uh, a lot of it specifically because I felt like some of the character stuff was surprisingly like kind of tender. Like yeah. it was, it was kind of nice. Like, like what for they, sure. like they were taking the emotional stuff of them seriously, but then they were also addressing the fact that there's something about performing on film and putting someone else on film that leads you to this idea that you're kind of controlling them a little bit. So yeah. I felt like her as a porn director versus her as like an emotional person was like, uh, I wouldn't say they were contradictory, but like it was leading to some tensions. For sure. And, and that, I think that was what went wrong with, you know, because I think her girlfriend was also, I think, an editor on the films that she right. worked for. Like she would leave like little messages sometimes in the, the film footage for right. her. And, and this was when like also that. she was leaving her. And I think that, that that's where like, right. she so was I feel getting like that. Her position is- as director where she's so used to controlling people, yeah. um, it d- wasn't working in her real life. But then also it has this idea of like, people being sort of preserved inside of film as well, which is why I thought it was kind of meaningful. Sure. Where, like, you know, there's all these lives of these, you know, these these uh, queer people who were killed and murdered, especially in that particular time period. Yeah. And that the film, they kind of like live on through this film, which is kind of like what you were talking about when we talked off um, the show, when you were talking about how much you really liked the credit sequence and stuff oh, like God, that too. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. They go yeah. into like this Also, by the way, the abstract. film that they're making in the film, I just wanted to hit this home, it's called Homocidal. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. just... Just fucking great. What a great joke. (laughs) (laughs) And the dialogue I love because they show scenes from the production, like the actual movie that they make. And they are hilarious. The dialogue is so funny and the performances are are just fantastic. Yeah. Um and yeah, that abstract. And the gorgeous lighting and the giallo. So interesting because it it, it's at first it's very, you know, like flamboyant. They they have uh, this this white room and this fountain and then one of the guys is dressed as like a like a what, what do they call that like a half goat half uh, man I can't remember what they're oh, called oh yeah I can't like, remember I- like imp or something I don't know I can't remember but uh but he's walking around with like a flute and it's like this like ancient Greek mythology <laughs> and, 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 thing. and cr- correct me if I'm wrong I'm pretty sure it's with all a lot of the people who were murdered throughout the yes, film a lot of them right. right and then this it's so, weird so, so, this, so, like, so it's kind of like where all of them have have gone after being murdered yeah so 
it's supposed to be this almost like this heavenly erotic yeah. kind of moment. And then and everyone's there, and then there's there's this odd thing where this darkness overlooms, and then you don't really know what it is, but everyone kind of has this frightened look. But the director seems to almost have a smirk on her face. Yeah. And I don't know where that well, comes from, but well, you well, were saying that it connects to the the AIDS crisis. So yeah, I, I like read the, um, 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 Willow. McClay Caitlin, when she was writing about the film, she wrote that it for to her it um, represented the looming AIDS epidemic, which was like the film very strategically takes place a couple years, like just before, like on the precipice right. of that about to be happening in real life. Yeah, um, and that it reminded her of the idea of like the Ten Commandments when like the the clouds all oh, cover up. Yeah. So kind of like this cool. this like, like that. this like ancient um, like. Um, uh, purge is kind of coming yeah. specifically of the queer community. Um, and the thing that I, I actually did go back and rewatch cause I remember you saying, I remember she smirked and I was like, I don't remember that. So I went back and rewatched. Am I watched, wrong? No, she does smirk. Okay. But not at the sight of the looming cloud oh, at the okay. sight of the person. She's, oh, okay. she's looking at the person and being like, we are together that this is coming, okay. but I'm with you okay. kind of deal. Yeah. I, uh, for some reason, so, I so, read so it it's still kind of like a sense but... of like solidarity of like these two okay. people are together while this thing is coming to get them kind of deal. For sure. For um, sure. And that happens in the fucking credits of the movie. Yeah. It was a very, like, it's, it's just a five minute sequence, but it's one of the most impactful moments in the whole thing. And it's, yeah, and it's during the credits. Yeah. So really stylish so, giallo slasher, uh, very yeah. specifically about sort of like the queer community in the seventies. Um, very beautiful, very gross. Yeah. Um, very colorful too. I love the color colorful. schemes in it. It's very good. Absolutely. I love that sequence when they all get, they all turn on the killer inside the porno theater. Oh yeah. And he's like this, this like grotesque kind yeah. of, uh, I don't know, deformed, but then he was man. also a victim. I guess his father like caught him with a gay lover or something like and that burned him, and I then think, burned right? him. Yeah, yeah. Which made him scarred. So it's like just generational, which, which makes him go after, yeah. you know, the fellow gay people. Cause they were like, why aren't you guys as traumatized as me kind of deal and right. stuff like that. And so, and another calling back to kind of like cruising again, where it's like, you're fighting your own like uh, yes. sexuality basically. Exactly. So yeah, it was great. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you put that on the list cause it was really close to making my list and yeah. I just couldn't barely couldn't fit it on there. But, uh, moving on from the tens here, we are going to move on to, uh, number nine, which for me happens to be shadow. Nice. Awesome. Uh, I won't go too deep into it because we actually just did a bonus transmission for the yeah. Patreon. Yeah, we do have a review on that bad boy where we talked about it for like kind of like 20 minutes. But um, what I discovered talking with Jamie about the film that kind of clarified this movie for me, um, um, obviously it's directed by uh, Zhang Yimou, who is sort of like the iconic um, Chinese filmmaker behind uh, such films as uh, Raise the Red Lantern and To Live in more of his drama wheelhouse in his wuxia wheelhouse. He got really famous off doing House of the Flying Daggers and Great um, one. Hero as oh, well. Yeah. And then most recently he's been doing film. He did uh, The Great Wall. Still um, got to check that out, actually. Yeah, very fun. Definitely him compromised by a $250 million budget for, or yeah, whatever it was. Sure. But still, you know, very lots of great colors, lots of great action still. Um, but the thing that we noted talking about it when we talked about it on the bonus transmission was how stripped of color this one is. That usually for him, like, color, like, fighting 
and war in the military is a sense of um, almost like an artist. He views it that way. And he did that a lot in the Great Wall. All the heroes have like giant purple or giant green armor and they have a flag that matches them while they're like running up and down the Great Wall and doing these amazing moves. Yeah. And the you know, the action is still incredible in this film, but it's a very monochromatic universe. It's it, yeah. it's very grayscaled. Um, the only thing that has any color in it at all is basically a slight skin tone and the blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's basically it. A lot of red. <laughs> yes. Um, so obviously the choreographed pageantry of it is as beautiful as ever, but there's more gore to it. There's more grossness to it. There's more nihilism to it. I find yeah. usually that like in something like Hero, the even all the, the, the warriors are expressing themselves. Yeah. It's emotional. The combat is there's so much feeling. There's so much character. Yeah. And in this, I, Jamie was right when he said that I couldn't really latch on to the characters. And I feel like it's part of what he's doing is yeah. this idea of kind it's of intentional like, for sure. Yeah. There's just he he feels clearly very different now, I think, about military power and war. And he sees less sort of like beauty and artistry in it and he sees more just kind of the, the death and the grossness and kind of almost the meaninglessness of it because yeah this whole- one he seems like it's he's more focused on the system itself that's destroying the humans yeah whereas well, like, because it's whereas kind of, it's, hero it's, it like right? it's more like he wanted to focus on the actual human side of things even though it's surrounded by a bunch of war and you know systematic oppression and all that kind of stuff yeah well it's just this one he's just diving right into it yeah well i would just say that like like the the plot is actually like really convoluted. Like it's kind, oh, yeah. it's kind of like I couldn't even really say what it is right now, to be honest. No, because it's it's really just about a king like trying to take back like a certain dominion, and like yeah. again, it almost doesn't matter because the whole point is he's saying, what is the point of all of this? What are yeah. they doing really? At the end of the day, they're all just gonna kill each other. Yeah, there and. Uh, the film is called Shadow because it's about a guy who is this ancient, you know, or not ancient, but like he's this very well-respected, well-known military commander who's just like this amazing fighter. But he's wrestling with the fact that he's aging and he can't like fight as well anymore. So he, you know, kidnaps this young boy from his family and trains him to be his shadow, this exact replica that he can send into battle instead of him. And then it's from the point of view of this shadow, this guy who was basically kidnapped and then um, invented to be just like this this symbol of military war and that was his only definition then he's like well what's the point of this war even so this guy's having like an existential crisis about (laughs) his own personal life because his personal life is so entrapped with this system of military power that's all he's been trained to do exactly like he doesn't have any other skills but then there's like this complicated thing where he's dealing with uh the the shadow's older wife uh, starts to kind of fall in love a bit with the shadow because it's the same guy. It's just a younger version. Um, and then the, you know, there's so much betrayal and intrigue and like double crossing and decoys. And yeah. like the movie is just absolutely in, in, insane in that regard. And then again, the action featuring just, you know, amazing umbrella, steel umbrella, bladed combat. Yeah. The umbrella combat. combat's unbelievable. Yeah, that that bit where, just adds such a sense of where style, the guy you know? using the umbrella and he sticks it into the bit bamboo yin and yang combat oh. stage that they're fighting on. The wood yeah. piece sticks out, and then the guy power kicks him across <laughs> it, and he gets gored by the fucking uh, splinter that's yeah. sitting out of it. And then obviously the Beyblade dudes too, as they they basically have an umbrella on top and below them, and then they're spinning down the hill, yeah. and all the people are like, "What the fuck?" And then they're firing <laughs> crossbows, crossbows outside of while they're spinning around. Oh. 
Oh my god! The I've never seen anything like it. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. And um, I I found when we were talking about it more in depth on the Patreon bonus transmission that I found more intrigue in in this story of this sort of like mm. this contradiction of the of the yin and yang and you know in a constant state of kind of uh, war. And the kind of like the reason why and how people get caught up in that and like how they're obviously their bodies are also sacrificed to do that and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I got a lot out of uh, Shadow and I get, uh, didn't get much of a theatrical release. Don't see a lot of people talking about it. So I yeah. definitely wanted to include it on the list because like a big martial arts film like that, expensive and beautiful and you know even more interesting than when i first watched it because when i first watched it i was in the same mode as you were i was like i was overwhelmed i was like what the fuck is happening but then when we talked about it i was like there's more happening there than i seem to recall happening i'm definitely gonna rewatch it because i just felt story-wise i just felt overwhelmed you know it was hard for me to recap it's a very confusing plot and i didn't realize until the second time that like it seems like that's kind of what he's going for is that war is confusing and pointless and like and the fact that like you like a lot of movies especially like hero for instance they have like uh colors to signify like which team they're on or whatever but everyone's (laughs) in like gray and black so it all kind of just melds together even within the fighting yeah and so you can never really know who you're rooting for or whatever's going on um, but in a, in a great way, because that's what he's intentionally trying to do. Hell yeah. Um, but you're number nine. For my number nine, it'll be uh, Hollywood. Uh, Once, Once Upon a Time, time in Hollywood. Hollywood. Uh, the reason I'm going to put it on the list was just what I said before. It, it felt to me like we were on the sets of all these movies that we've been discussing for the mm-hmm. last couple of years. Yeah. And there are still some moments that are definitely the... Uh, the, the kind of the the manly genre thing like we have brad pitt like beating up that charles manson guy when he won't let him in the car or whatever right. it is we have uh when he's versing bruce lee i, I really liked right before that when um um what's his face i can't remember what the guy is the same guy you're talking about the manson guy when he's riding the horse through the movie set oh, and text, it looks like an yeah. old western and stuff like that yeah yeah like so stuff, stuff like that was i mean the great. scene where brad pitt walks through an abandoned movie set that is like festering like a movement of violence and stuff like that inside yeah. of it that's just it's good stuff yeah and that's that's pretty much why i thought it it, it it still fit on the list and i just had such a good time with it um it was really uh manson's or manson's <laughs> Manson's uh, Tarantino's <laughs> you know, Manson directed this bad boy uh, it really was uh, Tarantino's like in my like his most lighthearted film even though we do have a very violent uh, ending mm-hmm. um, he still paints it in such a comedic way uh, that I, I've just I was exper- I was thinking it was going to be a much deeper film in regards to the the horror and mm-hmm. kind of the the uh the the murders themselves but the fact that he just subverts it completely and he's just like you know what no we're we're not gonna show murders <laughs> like I, I saw people uh arguing that it that it disrespects the the people that were murdered and stuff like that so i'm like so you're, so are you saying that the respectful thing would be to have tarantino go full gore and just show all of the like yeah show the show the baby death and all that is that what you were looking for Mm. because that's what we were discussing when uh when we exited the theater was kind of like of course this is how it was going to end in a sense yeah because we both went into it expecting kind of like the tragedy of right and and so that lingers over the entire movie exactly and Um, he he knows that too i think yeah he does he makes it so lighthearted throughout the first two hours that you're like well, here this it is comes. End, yeah. Here it comes, and then he just goes, "Nope, we're still gonna kind of make it this feel good vibe, and and we're just gonna be like, what if this never happened? What if it was a better world? You know?" 
And, uh, I mean, better world in some regards. DiCaprio's character is still kind of a piece of shit, but, you know, at least they're not being murdered. Yeah, and, and there was some interesting conversation around, like, that that catharsis that he provides us is, like, a little simplistic. Sure. Like, it's a little kind of, like, there was a lot more to what made, you know... That that, that, that year. And, 100%. Like, there's more social context. There's more... So, so, his, I just think so, so his dream is, like, a little juvenile. Like, this idea For of, sure. like... For sure. But it's also, that, that's also what knew, makes it funny. Yeah. Too, and I so. also think he knew what people were going into the film for. Yeah. So I think he was like, I'm not giving that to you. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I do, I do feel like there was at least 50% of people going in and going, we're going to watch Tarantino do Manson murders, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's gross, but it's a reality of what a lot of people go to films for. So... I like that he was just like, Hell, I, I'm saw, not, I, I mean, I going into it. That's what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. Oh, me too. But I mostly I went in thinking, how is he going to do that's that? That's what it was. Exactly. I, I was kind of like, how are you going to get away with this? How are you going to pull this off and, and, and make thing, it empathetic? And it was funny. I was actually just, I'm glad you brought this up because I was just talking because people were just having this argument again on Twitter the oh, other really? day. So I was just <laughs> talking about this the other day. And I actually said that I thought that the catharsis of it is still sort of muted by the reality that for yeah. me, there's still something sad about this movie because, because we know the the truth. We know what actually yeah, so, happened. So, so what he's going for, and, yeah. we, and we talked about it in our uh, bonus transmission when we talked about it is that he's expressing, you know, Tarantino using this, he's in his historical rewriting phase. Yeah, he clearly yeah. believes in the power of fantasy and movies and what they can do. But I felt like yeah. this was the first one he made out of all of those where he was also wrestling with like the limitation yeah. of what cinema because cinema can't bring her back like it's like yes right. she's there but i love that final scene where you never really see her that she talks almost like ghostly through the monitor and then he sure. and then he welcomes her through the gate almost like, like he's joining her exactly like, yeah. like joining with her yeah. so for me like inglorious bastards like that was a film where right. he, he was righteously rewriting something he was weaponizing like they just rip movies apart hitler yes and no one's mad about that <laughs> and and uh, i love that he does it at a propaganda movie house where he's showing yeah. like look the not Nazis weaponized movies yeah and he's saying we should weaponize movies against them and yeah. like that kind of stuff so for me it was like cinema has been abused for evil and he's like i'm gonna righteously try to fix that it was like a call to arms almost for and then sure. so when i was watching this one this felt different this felt more yeah. like an acknowledgement that that history you know despite all of his efforts it, it can't be changed that yeah. he's only responding to it so to me yeah, like the that. fact that people are saying that this is like a childish dream um, to me, just is what the movie is about. Yeah, what it is. He's yeah. dreaming of a time and place that will never actually exist. Yeah. And he's saying, we'll, we'll live here for a little while, but as soon as those movie house lights go up, yeah. and as, soon, and as, and, like and as a, soon as the fairy tale title card comes up where it says, once upon a time in Hollywood, yeah. right at the and end, with that like very mournful music. Now. Yeah. Exactly. I sure. feel like that's him acknowledging mournfully that like movies can only do so much. Yeah. I, I 100% agree with you. Um, and, uh, and it's also just an incredibly funny movie. Overall. Yeah, and if you just want, that's the thing. If you want to sit down and just be entertained, it it's has a great plenty of that movie. Too. It's general. just it's very upbeat. It's we talked non-stop. about in the bonus transmission where we were saying yeah. something along the lines of um, that, like it felt like, especially for Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate, that he wasn't writing her like a Tarantino character. It was very splice yeah. of life. It was just watching her live her life and what Hollywood kind of kind of looked like in this time period. So, yeah, um, and Brad Pitt. Is so good at the oh, movie, so just good. in general. I, I like the, I all love the, scenes. The, the long scene of him uh, uh, beating up Bruce Lee and then getting fired, and then it cuts right back to him and he goes, Yeah, fair okay. <laughs> like, he's fair like, enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's just yeah, there there was some great moments. Just his with friendship him. and the way that he's and the always acid trip the, the way that real. he's always there for Leonardo DiCaprio's yeah. character. Like them just I, watching I his old moving. show and stuff. It's just so heartwarming. Well, like, and I love that he invites him in. He's just like, "Do you want to come in and like watch some FBI?" Yeah, and uh, he's just like. I already brought the beer, man. I thought, you know, I just figured that's what we would do. Like, grab, let me grab, <laughs> yeah, let me like, grab the six pack. Man, in the I'm back. way ahead of you, in. brother. And then there's that whole part where they're just watching the show and they're basically just doing like commentary. Yeah, yeah. Where it's, he, it's he, awesome. He was, where it's like streets of silence or whatever. And he's like, not when my boy Rick Dalton is on him <laughs> yeah. or whatever. He's like, <laughs> it's so great. It's so hangout, and I love it. It's just, it's, it's yeah. so fun to watch. It and is. It's, it's a really good hangout movie. Absolutely. So that was your number nine. Yes. Uh, moving along here to my number eight, I had lose. Nice. Yeah, that was, uh, it was unreal. This one carried over. We did a bonus transmission. We did a lot of bonus transmissions this year, I guess. We did a bonus transmission on this one too, but again, um, it was a thesis student in Germany doing, uh, his version of kind of like an eighties possession film, but doing it in this like really, uh, creepy 16 millimeter atmosphere. Yeah. And also turning it into like a psychodrama where we talked about where it's kind of like psychologically investigating its characters through like memory and therapy and stuff like yeah. that. And then how like the, it almost seems like this real world kind of starts to mold with the spirit world. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about the inciting scene of the film, which happens in the middle where she's like, there's a doctor there trying to find, get like seemingly talk to this thing that maybe has possessed this girl. Yeah. And he's trying to get her to recall her memories while she's in the room. So she's driving a car in a chair, but all the sounds of her actually driving the car are there. Yeah. And then also it's... Sound work is so good. So it's infected by the memories he's bringing out of her, other memories that she's putting into it, as well as there's possibly memories in there of the demon that's actually possessed her. Yeah. And then also her desires, which it sounds like are partially sometimes romantic. Like she might even be romantically involved with the demon that has possessed her or something. And the fact that to transfer the demon, it's through a kiss. So it's... Yes. through like a romantic act something that would exactly. be traditionally loving so yeah and then and i mean i think there's even near the the end they even discussed how it was like was it was it like two demons almost falling in love with each other and something trying, like that. trying to find bodies to, like, to actually because it's actually with? quite confusing and, yeah. and, and the, the style is really awesome and it's so like subjective like it gets you so much into the yeah. headspace of a character going through this and it has this really dreamy like synth soundscape to it um, and it, re- I, it reminded me, I brought it up when we did the bonus transmission, it reminded me um, a lot of, of Cure, which mm, we did on the sure. show, just because of those, it has those mundane, like, wide compositions yeah. of, like, a possessed person, like, walking through them. And there's something off kilter about that, because, like, they're not moving like a real person would, but the frame yes. is so static and everything else is so, like, real, Grounded I guess. Grounded in realism, yeah. Yeah, um, but then also it has these really intense, like, surreal, abstract filmmaking qualities when it gets into the memories and stuff. So, yeah, the way that the movie is invested in the therapist, it's invent- invested in this girl, it's invested in this relationship with this other girl she had in a previous time mm. who maybe also summoned the demon, and then also the relationship with the demon. So these four different people, it's in all of their subjective points of view at the same time. So it's about, you know, it's 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 blurring stylistically, you know, the actions that they're doing, the feelings that they have, the memories that they have. And again, also including the demon in that who's maybe possessed her. Yeah. Um, so all of those point of views just like bleed into each other and they become completely indistinguishable. So by the time you reach the end of the film and this really creepy static shot like in Cure, but you're not sure how to feel about it yeah. because there's been so many contradictory feelings that you've had. So the way that I described it was like, have you just witnessed 
an unholy union like you would in a normal possession film. Like right. a, a demon Something has possessed demonic, this person. Bound. Yeah. That right. So is that what you've watched or have you watched someone finally achieve emotional harmony? Yeah. Yeah. Where like they've maybe actually figured something out. They have actually cathartically fused with the demon as a way of uh, like actually overcoming yeah. what was contradictions and problems that internal issues that they had. And you leave the movie being like, I don't know which one of those two things happened. Maybe both of them happened. Yeah, right. <laughs> which is just a really awesome way to feel. And either way, it's seventy minutes. If it you has can a find very it. killer final shot with with some great like sound work of the guy. I think he's like talking over a walkie-talkie or something like that, yeah. trying to warn people. But you just well, see, I, like like was it that or was he also inside as well? Like oh, I, yeah, I couldn't find out if he was trapped in the body too. That's true. Walking around because they never reveal that. That's that's the also the genius of honestly the sound it's very design ambiguous. in this movie is awesome it's so oh, good because yeah. the way that they do that it, it, it helps create that kind of confusion that i think he's going for yeah you feel like you're in this really weird space yeah almost the whole time yeah, yeah. especially so, yeah once you get into that that room with with the, the interrogation it just goes completely yeah. unhinged so so in terms of the form and the style this one hasn't like left my brain like with what he's doing so um and it's one of those things where the ambiguity and the contradictions of it they don't like leave me feeling like confused or like upset like they yeah. leave me it's not feeling un- it's not unsatisfying if anything it just like deepened the film it made me think about it more so yeah um if, sure. you, if anyone has a chance to see that it's a film called lose and the filmmaker is a guy named tillman singer and again fucking thesis film fuck yeah this, guy. this isn't yeah like holy i'm putting hell. a thesis film a student film <laughs> in on our my top fucking 10. top 10 of the like year. like he is a talent i can't wait to see uh what what he does for, for sure real. um yeah my number eight is uh parasite which uh yes. was was just fantastic Good um i uh the the thing that that got me the most one specific scene that that i think kind of shows what the whole film is doing was that uh the the rain scene where it basically shows how it's the the rich people the, the most that they have to go through it's like oh my camping trip has just completely been yeah. destroyed that's a bummer yeah. but you can still camp in the backyard our huge 100 foot square backyard you know it's all good uh whereas the poor family they go back and their entire house is flooded all their property is destroyed you yeah. know and it's just that difference. And they, they have to sleep overnight in that gymnasium right there. right and it's just th- that difference um in like class reality like the yeah, physical reality of, of just something as simple as rain like even know, and up until that point like they're interacting with each other as if almost right. like like the idea is that they pretend that there's almost like an equal, like they're talking friendly to them. They're talking, they're very nice. They talk yeah. about how nice they are in this way that like they're treating them like equals, but they, the, the, what he's going for is the physical reality that they aren't. Yes. Like even if they view each other as that, yeah. it's not, they just aren't. And, in, and, they're, and, the and by the time itself. you reach the end of the film, they're very clearly saying that. Yeah, like, yeah. Again, it's, it's like this almost like uh um, the social reality is that you kind of have to pretend that you are, yes. but really you're not. And then I also love that he, he has both, like he has the two poor families kind of having to butt heads in order to just yeah. create the, an opportunity so, jobs, so that they yeah. can have a job. So then it ends up in just the poor pretty much just violently, uh, fighting each other in order to get the job that, um, yeah. you know, should probably, we should be more available to, to people. So it's uh, it's it's re- it's a really just good look at, at class difference, um, and in a way that isn't so like some of some of the times with those films, I I feel like they just paint all the rich people as like these almost cartoonish characters of evil. Right, like an evil Whereas yeah. I like that these people were still very like 
you know, you could empathize with them and stuff, and they, were, they weren't pieces of shit. It's just the movie itself wouldn't let you, it doesn't let uh, the, the class difference escape you. You know, right. like it's always there. It's always overlooming. Right, because they're not doing it like it's established in the film. That, like they, they just clearly don't seem to realize right. like what their accumulation does to other people. Right, exactly. And they don't seem to recognize that. And then what happens is obviously those contradictions over the course of the film, they reveal themselves, right? Right. Like that's kind of like the... Like, and I like it. He paints like that. The, that's actually like the suspense of the film is that these transactional relationships of these class relationships they butt up against each other until the yeah. point where, like, very clearly, there's going to be a violent destination where someone has to win out. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Everyone is competing technically. Yeah, and it's uh, and by and by the end, I won't I won't say any spoilers just in case, but uh, it's pretty heart wrenching. I'll say that it's uh. It, it definitely goes to the darkest place it could have. Yes. <laughs> so that's a that's a, a bit of a bummer, but it, it it's the reality. So, uh, yeah, it was it was fantastic. Hell yeah, that was so my on, number we on, eight. So we're on eight. seven. We're I on seven. All right, sounds good. So my number seven is one I don't think that Jamie ended up um, catching up with. Oh, um, it is um, long day's journey into night i did miss this one yeah yes so i don't know how i had i, a, I had a chance to re- to rewatch it um but i i watched this two years ago at tiff it took a long okay. time for this to maybe come that's out. why i missed it maybe it was under like 2018 on letterbox yes and it I, was on 2018 so i yes. just i yeah i didn't uh didn't see it but it's by um a chinese filmmaker named um bygone and it is uh a little bit stretching the definition of genre. I mean, okay. it, it is the uh, setting is very neo-noir. Yeah. Um, it's very sort of mystery and crime and involves gangsters and stuff like that. But the actual style is like incredibly dreamy and dramatic. And the thing about it, um, I think I've told you um, about this film because this is the one that um, I got to see it at TIFF and I prioritize seeing it as best as I could because it would be the only time I would ever see it theatrically in 3D, which is yeah. how it was designed. Oh, okay. Um, and what happens is basically the first half, of, they just handed you glasses. And, I do remember you telling me and about they, this. And, yeah. and they said, you'll know when to put them on is all they said. So yeah. the fir- and I'm sitting here, it's an hour into the movie. I'm like, I haven't put the glasses on yet. I'm like, it's like did it, I miss it? Yeah, is it <laughs> like, uh, did we all miss it? But the, the first half of the movie is basically just this guy. His father's passed away. He returns to his hometown and his hometown starts bringing these fractured memories out of him where he is recalling, you know, a time where one of his close friends was killed by a gangster and that there was like the gangster's girl um, was kind of like wandering around his local town. And I think it's called Cali. Yeah. Um, and uh, he made another film called Cali Blues. So clearly he makes films kind of like about sad, lonely men in his hometown. Oh, okay. So he does, but he does, this guy's walking around and he's having all these memories brought back to him. And there's these small details like the girl wearing a green dress, the girl eating an apple. Um, and he's recalling how he wished that, you know, he kind of fell in love with her and he wished he could have got her out of that lifestyle and maybe escaped with her and had another life. And right. he's very regretful about, you know, it, it's, it sounds like it's implied that it was either she escaped, but nobody really knows. Maybe she was killed. Um, and um, the first half is him, us experiencing these memories as he's walking around and he's sort of, sort of flashbacky, but like 
the way that the style's done is you can't you can never really tell when and if it's a flashback or not. Like oh, okay. the hometown is so dilapidated in the flashback and in the modern time yeah. that you can't actually ever sometimes really tell until you see the girl if you're watching a flashback or not. Oh, okay. Um but the second half, what happens is he liked going to the movies with her. So he goes back to the movie house where, you know, she's like eating an apple and she's crying watching like this old romance drama or whatever, and it's like a porno theater now. But he sits <laughs> down and it's like a dilapidated, broken down theater and they have hand him the 3d glasses he puts them on and they hold on him putting on the 3d glasses so that was to tell all the audience everyone it's time put our 3d glasses on title card long day's journey into <laughs> night <laughs> dude that's crazy and then the remaining hour entirely is a single take 3d shot of <laughs> of a dream Oh, wow. So it's him asleep in the theater, and it moves very slowly. The camera moves are amazing. Apparently, I think they had to shoot it four different times, but it's a one-hour-long shot. Yeah. That they had to shoot four times. So wait, so this, it's not, like, stitched together? No. They legitimately did All the shot? All one shot using Holy a 3D shit. camera. That's um, crazy. And then you're watching him wander this dream, and all of those memories, all of those feelings, some of the details, like the apple, there's a horse, there's the stuff, and he comes across it randomly in his dream. Yeah. He comes across the girl, but she's dressed differently. She's got different hair. She's He's imagining in his dream, like maybe she did escape and she's living a new life and all of this. Yeah. And it just, the way that it dreamily and like romantically captures all of his memories and the textures of another time um, and the way that specific objects and colors and places and feelings all just collapse into a single shot yeah. that he orchestrates with those things like, you know, Apple like rolls by or whatever it, suddenly in the awesome. dream while he's walking around. Um, and the way that he gets the, it's again, it creates this bizarre kind of like discombobulated feeling like a real dream, like a real out of body experience. Sometimes the camera, but it's will, nice cause you probably have some context given the first hour, right? So it's like the do. abstraction isn't constantly yeah, some, just like, what is this? Cause some that, people thought the first hour was like kind of slow and boring. They couldn't figure mm. it out. And then it all makes sense when you get into the dream yeah. and you're like, he's brought all of this into the dream with him. And sometimes the camera will just like take off. And okay. like ride around up top for a little bit and then come back down. It's kind of similar like to, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's a Gaspar Noe film. Um, Enter the Void. Yeah. Is it like that? I've, I've heard some comparisons, okay. but I think people um, like uh, in terms of subject matter, I've heard not quite the same. But like in terms okay. of because I because I, that's more POV, right? Yeah, this at least isn't the, POV. First, the first 45 minutes is POV, but then as, because he, he, basically the camera acts as his spirit, mm. so he at one point dies, and then basically it's this odyssey of a spirit just going to places throughout the city and watching his friends interact and yeah, things like so, that. Yeah, so it's not quite as literal as that, Okay, but sometimes the camera will lose track of the character and then come back, gotcha. or sometimes it will do other things. Gotcha. Like the camera kind of has a mind of its own a little bit as it's wandering around his okay. dream, but the dream, you can tell, it's it's all constructed from inside of him. It's all internal. So it's very, it's just externalized in this one take, everything that he's previously been feeling on the inside. Um, and the way that it just collapses the spatial conventions and the narrative storytelling and basically captures this feeling of like, just uh, that we are kind of like finite mm -hmm. that like, you know, he's looking at this previous time and he's trying to recreate her in this dream and it's, she's not quite the same. It doesn't quite work. Yeah. Um, and then it ends on this shot of kind of like a single fire work stick kind of like burning out. And it's just like, that's what kind of like it feels like in life is that the thing just moves and moves and moves and moves yeah. and you're going to carry your feelings with you. But like time doesn't stop for right. you. 
Um, and yeah, so, and, and again, the way that that's wrapped up into this sort of like mobster drama. Uh, so again, the style is very dreamy and romantic and, um, but the actual setting itself is about like murdered gangsters and stuff like that. So sort of interesting, kind of, uh, pushes the definition of a genre, but, uh, I thought about this film a lot since I saw it and I especially loved being able to see it in 3d at the, at the theater. Um, and then I rewatched it again and I was like, yeah, that's a really strong movie. Yeah, dude, that I, I am a hundred percent going to watch that very soon. Check it out. But your number seven, uh, my number seven is dragged across concrete. I just, Fucking love S. Craig Zoller now. He's so like, good. He's so good. Um, this movie definitely what didn't hit me as hard, uh, at least at first, as uh, a Brawl on Cell Block 99. I think Brawl is just so easy to connect to because it's just like, you know, one guy who's down on his luck trying to avenge his, his wife or his pregnant wife. Uh, that's just it's easier to latch on to a character like that you know it's easy to easier to understand uh, well i also like that it, it stuck with his pov for most of that movie yeah, right like yeah. you're just following this big bruiser around as the he whole like time. walks into a room and you can like feel his presence in right the way that he and especially and just stuff. watching like vince vaughn do it and he's yeah. got such a, a a big physical uh performance in yeah that and, and also that he's kind of like emotionally sensitive too yeah, yeah. And then to see him do this where it's like uh, he's still big and he's still very uh, a powerful man. You know, he, he's definitely yeah. uh, and has some corruption to him as well. Um, but this time around, he gets to kind of do the uh, uh, the bad cop, but also he, he's very funny in the movie, but with a lot of very politically incorrect humor. Yes, that's, um, fair. that's Craig Zoller's wheelhouse and that's a little his, bit. Yeah, that's what he does. He has the, the muddled politics, and, and I just, uh, I fucking love it because mm-hmm. there's really no filmmaker that's doing what he's doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of just like making more right-wing films, and you just, you don't see them. You never see them. Yeah. Uh, and I like that he's doing it, and I like that he's doing it in a not-so-simplistic way like, uh, like we'd see from Death Wish or something like that, you know? Right. Like, it's not like he's saying that these characters these cops are just good people well, no, doing their job he's, he's still a full-blown exploitation filmmaker yes. is the thing and i think yeah. he knows how to distance himself from his characters yeah so like even sure. even if you think that craig zoller like believes some of the things that his characters are saying i feel like his movie doesn't all the time yeah. like his movie yeah. his movies are still pointedly critiquing his characters most and of the i time. think he knows that too in a sense oh he's aware like, yeah like i think he's completely aware and he's i enjoy a, he, the, he's, a, he's a very smart filmmaker regardless. i enjoy the the dad conversations that they have like the one in the the restaurant where they're just like is this a man or a woman singing this and they're like i don't know <laughs> like just stuff like that like it just i love that old man <laughs> grumpy humor and and the the attitude especially I, coming from mel gibson and vince mel Vaughn. gibson and vince Vaughn. i mean come on baby uh so yeah that's great and then uh also the end um it seemed like a lot of people were saying like you know the the stuff on race is a little muddled but i found it to be pretty pretty clear because at the at the end once you see mel gibson's character do all these really bad things to a lot of uh, uh, minority groups um, to do his job. He, he At the end, his distrust for this uh, black man is what gets him killed. Yeah. So <laughs> obviously S. Craig Zoller isn't just like, yeah, he's got the right idea. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, I just love that he's able to mix these kind of muddled politics with um, 
with with some 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 clarity as well. Like he still has ideas that I can agree with. It's just he always also backs them up with things that I'm like, oh, I don't I don't know, I don't know about that. And it's just fascinating to me. Yeah, I, that was I, the contradiction of watching this film because I really liked Bone Tomahawk and I loved Brawl and Cell yeah. Nine Nine. Like that movie so made me like a super fan. So when I watched Dragged Across Concrete, I was a little disappointed, despite the mm. fact that I also really liked the film. Yeah, like it was this weird thing where I was just like, for S. Craig Zoller. I expected a little bit more. I found him a little simplistic just in the way that he like some of the the writing and the humor was just like it was a little bit like what I would expect out of like sort of like edgy troll kind of humor. I get in, you in that sense. But I feel like he was doing a little of that on purpose, though, like yes. the, like the thing with and I get I get that since it's on purpose doesn't make it like you're going to like it more. It's just uh, I do think that there's a, a sincerity to it where yeah. where like I. And I do find that funny. I don't know. I've always found dad well, humor you know, like do you, know, funny. do you know who would be like that? Probably a lot of cops. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I think I love that kind of that humor. I know I don't agree with what they say a lot in this film, obviously, but the I see the the humor in the yes. disgusting nature of some of this shit. And yeah. and although it's bad. He paints it in a way that he he, he definitely doesn't paint it in a good light. We'll no, say no, no. But it's still in a way that you you. Like, I don't, it's not, certain things aren't funny, but it's the way that Mel Gibson, like the scene where he's with the, the girl from the drug de- dealer, the girlfriend of the drug dealer. Yeah. And he's like making fun of the fact, like, he's like, uh, I don't speak Spanish. And then even when he's, she's speaking English to him, he's just like, oh, I can't understand you. Right. Like, there's they're, something they're just, so they're, they're overtly being racist. About that, <laughs> that I laugh. Like, and it, the timing is yeah. somewhat comedic. And, uh, but I like that it's, that it makes me feel like this weird gray where I'm like, Oh, I, I shouldn't, you feel gross, but like it's inherently funny. Yeah, exactly. So S Craig Zoller, I think is a master at that. And yeah, uh, and and I can't wait to see what he does. And I mean, stylistically. Oh Jesus. The movie is a beautiful movie. It probably is like the, the most like beautiful one that he's made so far. Um, And I love the, uh, the totally evil, like bad guys that are just completely psychos. Like they're a little, you know, they're obviously a little unrealistic that there have been people like that, but you know, it's not the, it's not the traditional crime of what crime usually is. Um, but I do like that they just took that and they're like, well, instead of, you know, versing these oppressed minority groups, we're just going to give you this full on fucking like Russian evil guy (laughs) that's just taking out variety (laughs) store clerks and doing whatever else. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I just, I, yeah, and I the really way it's all it. wrapped up and again in his slow burn kind of like leathery pulp style that yeah. he has, that's like really gorgeous, like tranquil, like wide compositions. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, Tons. he all, really likes to show the entire environment a lot of the time. Oh yeah. And the way that it's matched with like his slow pacing and mm-hmm. then obviously his ferocious explosions of like yep. carnage when he decides to go that route. Yep. Like again, the way that he does that and the way here that he also puts that into kind of like an Elmore Leonard like heist hangout style movie yeah. which if you've ever seen like um Out of Sight or uh, Jackie Brown is another Elmore okay, Leonard yeah, thing I've seen like Brown. it's got like that sort of like criminal hangout kind of vibe to it a For little sure. bit too just in his own sort of more repugnant like yeah. twisted and version and a lot of, of that. time you're looking at cops doing the criminal stuff too <laughs> right right because at a certain point they're doing it off duty like they're taking it upon themselves to do it they've been kicked off the case and they're right. just like fuck it i've got things to do i got 
crimes exactly. to solve. Exactly. Now, I, I actually didn't get a chance to rewatch this, so I do have to rewatch it at some point yeah. because I remember being like, all of this stuff is it's typical Zoller stuff that I love. Yeah. And I remember just being a little deflated every once in a while when like his characters would say like these really lazy, immature things. And but I, 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 I also get that like. Th- those are the characters he's written, right? right. So it's not like again, it's not yeah. like he's spouting. Even these at the end, out. like Vince Vaughn has the thing with his girlfriend, and yeah. at the end, right before he, I don't know, at the end, uh, she <laughs> right before says, some gross shit yeah, happens. She says, uh, "Like no, like I won't marry you," kind of thing. And yeah. I think it's just you know, it's connecting his bad personality, is his actions that he's taken in the past, yeah. and just kind of they've all come to this point, and now you don't get the love of your life. Blah blah blah. Some other things happen. And, uh, you know, it, it's, he's, he's not just like these characters are like, they get what they deserve. Let's say that, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it, you just have to get all the way to the end where that happens. Cause the first, like, you gotta half go through of the a movie, lot of gross shit. The yeah. first half of the movie when he's just Mel Gibson sitting there with his wife talking about how like, you know, I think the blacks are going to rape our daughter any day. Yeah. We because they threw here. a slushie at her. I'm like, well, it's like, yeah, bullying's bullying. Maybe don't throw slushies, but also let's not jump to rape. <laughs> Easy Mel. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, if you guys like S Craig Zoller, definitely. I mean, I'm assuming if you do, you probably check it out. If you haven't checked it out, I think it's definitely worth watching no matter, no, no matter what. Um, cause like stylistically and, uh, he's doing what no one else is doing right now. Yep. Even if it wasn't quite uh, brawl and cell block 99 for me, yeah, which, which I, I think, still prefer brawl, which I think just had a lot of those similar like economic anxieties and the crime and the institutional brutality stuff. Yeah. Like and the just, subterranean prison shit is on fucking real in that movie. Yeah. And for some reason I feel like I could just latch on to Vince Vaughn because even the yeah. few times where he is like racist or gross in that movie he usually does it out of calculation like he's usually yeah. such a composed guy who doesn't make any movement without thought yeah and the few times he's racist it's to like kind of like trigger people that he's about yeah. to engage in combat with yeah, and he stuff even, he even makes fun of a guy that uh, uses the the uh the gay slur yeah um and um so it's like he, he's He's surrounded by those characters, right? See, I, I and feel, he connects with them. But I feel he's like also, Vince Vaughn in that movie is much closer to probably what Craig Zoller is, and in yeah. here he's messing with just more repulsive characters. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Yeah. Uh, what number was that one? Oh, uh, that was seven. So we're on seven, six. Seven, six. Holy shit, we are going to go for a while here. Yeah, but maybe, that's fine. Let's maybe, do it. Yeah, we might want to crank them out a little faster. We'll try. Know. We keep wanting to talk about each one, though. I know. Um, number six for me is fucking glass. Nice. I rewatched it again, and because uh, it was that's what I gotta do. It, it was closer to like the ten or the nine. I rewatched it again, and it almost like had me tearing up when I was watching it the third time. So oh, hell yeah, I bumped it up a little bit more because I really love Unbreakable, and I really love yeah. Split. Me and too. I watched this, and I couldn't quite figure out really what he was going for when I uh, first watched it, and then the second time I watched it, um, it really just did click for me the way that he was continuing his story of unbreakable which um for anyone who doesn't quite remember the main part of that story was that um sam jackson playing um mr glass was this guy who sort of became super villainous because he has like that soggy bones thing where like he'll he'll break really easily you know if someone just like kind of like taps him or whatever um and in that film 
he is hunting down kind of like his polar opposite, someone who got super strength because he's like, if I'm super weak, there's got to be someone out there who got the reverse. Like there's there's abnormalities right. in the human condition. And he orchestrates the, the all these different, um, you know, collapses and things that look like accidental deaths, but ends up he planned them. And that was how he discovered that Bruce Willis has super strength or whatever, because he crashed his train, which he was the lone survivor of. Right. Um, and the ending of Unbreakable is Bruce Willis kind of discovering that he was created basically found out he was a superhero his origin story came from the fact that this guy orchestrated it against him this guy who was creating looking at these comic stories and he he talks about comic stories as a history mm-hmm. that they are a history of some something that someone saw something that someone felt one time yeah and they've taken it to this extreme imagery um and then he actually lives that experience so when i when I went back and I rewatched Unbreakable and then I came back to Glass, I realized that Glass was more of a continuation of that stuff, of this idea of the archetypes, of this idea of construction. And I read also an interview with Shyamalan after, which clarified it for me, which he said he directed the movie as if Mr. Glass was directing a movie. Oh, okay. So he designed it as like kind of like this master plan design. And when you rewatch the movie, you'll see how amazing the compositions are, the POV images, the way that he's edited them together, the way that he's really thought this through and the way that he he's orchestrated it the same way that you might normally where you'd think oh he got to a twist but the twist is more emotional realization yeah. than it is plot that almost. was something i was i mean because that's the thing with m night Shyamalan, you kind of always are anticipating that um, because the plot twist isn't that shocking no what, what is kind of shocking is the, the emotional is reaction the fact that it wasn't a twist right because that it was that all that, that it was even more connected because right, the movie tries to uh even trick you into the fact that it's like, well, maybe this, maybe you were just experiencing like, uh, imaginative things. Like it wasn't, maybe it wasn't all real. Maybe, maybe these people don't have powers. Maybe they just had abnormal situations or whatever. But then it's revealed again that no, these people have those powers, but the, but the, uh, I guess the man or whatever was, was trying to make it seem like they didn't have them like gaslighting them essentially. Yes. Yes, exactly. So the way that I, the way that I viewed it is that if Unbreakable was this, you know, this movie about, you know, Elijah comic books being the stories that we, we tell ourselves so that certain realities and certain pains and traumas that we have make more sense. Like you're turning them into simplistic archetypes, the good guys and the bad guys. You know, it's just like maybe you live in a world where you were born with this, you know, deformity and it's really terrible and he's trying to make sense of that. Yeah. So he's trying to make sense of it through comic books and trying to give his pain purpose. He's just like, so because I have this pain, I'm going to channel that into becoming a supervillain. Right. And then in Split, it was all about how that that shared pain could be like a sense of power like the idea of James McAvoy's character in that was that he was abused into having this multiple personality disorder that he has um and then his his plan is to go out and make everyone like that yeah. is to make everyone abused and traumatized and so that they become their highest form that it's almost actually a biological <laughs> super unlocking it is a super power. a superpower to be inflicted with pain and to become something else something stronger something better yeah. so he views it as almost evolution and in split and i found that idea really powerful and really emotional in split when they get to the end of split and he's like the broken are the more evolved and yeah. he's like yeah. you are impure because she was abused by um, I think it was her uncle or her dad's friend. Yeah. Um, and she had like cuts on her and stuff like that from the abuse. 
Um, so the way that it takes both of those ideas of this taking your pain, giving it purpose, and then how your pain can almost become power and how you can, you know, you can use yeah. it to turn into something else. And the way that glass takes both of those and it basically tells you that like there's a solidarity there, that all of these people are being sold as the supervillains and the superheroes. They're archetypes that have to duke it out. That's what yeah. they have to do. And then they come to the end realization and they're like, holy shit, we're, we're all similar. We're all victims in our own way. We're all like, there is a more clear like evolution of like emotional compassion that all these mm-hmm. characters could hit. Like the girl who was technically abused by James, Ma- James McAvoy's character goes up to him and, and hugs him mm-hmm. um, to get him back into his normal body. So they don't shoot him and stuff like that. Right. And then he's laying there and he's being like, you know, it's not so bad in the light and being awake with you when like the whole reason for his personality disorder was because the light was so hard before yeah. with his abusive yeah. mother. So yeah. now he's back and he's looking at this girl that he abused and he's like, you know, they're having an emotional connection there. And the way that that is stomped out by just like this political power, this mundane reality. I love the bit where they're supposed to have that final fight at the big tower and they set it up in the movie the yeah. same way they would set up everything. They're like, oh, why are they, they have you kind of imagine it too? like they like they this set big it up superhero movie climax yeah. where the big bad guy and the big good guy fight each other at the brand new constructed building. Of, yeah. And then it all of, blows up and of, like, yeah. mod, of, of modern life and progressivism. Yeah. But and instead all of this. it's a SWAT team <laughs> just like taking. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, instead, what if they couldn't even get to the big act showed at third act showdown yeah. because they were too busy being brutally murdered in a parking lot? Yeah. By a reactionary, like militant counter-revolution group, basically, yeah. who are like the idea of superheroes threatens the status quo. So we just aren't going to allow them to exist again, abusing them even further. When again, we've been shown that there is a route here where all of these people are connected and yeah. might have, you know, uh, you know, they could help, they could do something more. Um, but instead, the way that the world is organized, the world will react. It doesn't want to change. Right. Um, so the abuse is going to continually be systemically perpetuated the same way it was at the end of Split when she gets into the cop car and you think she's going to be okay. Yeah. And instead, they're going to probably take her back to her uncle where she's going to be abused again. Yeah. So, so like, like again, he's, he's – he's, Shyamalan is just a really beautiful storyteller and he very clearly is in the headspace of like people – are feeling abused and traumatized and he's channeling that again the way that he channels that into this like low budget superhero film which is just a fuck you to the in the face of what superhero Especially movies look like right now. now yeah exactly well and the fact that um this was basically like released by disney um dis- distributed anyway oh, later really? by disney yeah just by circumstance it oh, happened okay. to be distributed by their live action arm buna vista or whatever yeah um and clearly it's like a fuck you to corporate control and like this idea of individuality being snuffed out and like stuff like that. So, um, the dude's just, he's a really idiosyncratic filmmaker and I found this movie really, um, um, you know, trying to get individual expression into like a commodified world and passing on images and feelings. And I love where she's like, comic books aren't valid history is what she says at one point. So, um, yeah, gotta say the, and the way that again, that all reverberates, um, through these characters, like psychologically and and physically, and the shared power of victimhood and stuff like that, it's really powerful stuff, actually. Yeah, and it, it ends on the line where they say, "We exist." Yeah. And I realized watching it the third time it has the same ending as they live. 
Oh, really? Where they t- show the world that superheroes exist. It ends oh, yeah, up, yeah. like, it's not yeah. quite as hilarious and, like, it's no, not yeah, as visceral. The, it's the big reveal, But the same yeah. idea is that we haven't actually answered. He hasn't given you an answer to this problem, to these mm. institutions. He's just said, people out there know the truth now. They got to figure it out from there. Yeah. Yeah, I got, dude, I got to rewatch it because I think the first time it was just, uh, I was, I think I was just more focused on, mm-hmm. like, what is he going to do? And and I didn't I didn't find myself the, the letting plot, me the, the plot is underwhelming when you eventually right. get to the end. But and then, that's what I was focused on, which was the mistake. I exactly. should have just been focusing on the characters themselves. So that was why when I rewatched it, I was like, "Holy crap! This is way more about these characters and yeah. these emotions than it is that plot." That it really clicked for me. Uh, for me, the number six will be John Wick Three. Beauty. I just fucking loved this movie. I rewatched it to make sure that it still was as impactful as it was the first time. Uh, now I will say it's it, we were discussing how we we wanted uh, it to wrap up with this film and it doesn't. But <laughs> that being said, I do like that they're expanding on the universe. I do like that the first movie has this very just personal feel. You know, he's mm-hmm. going in because of his wife and his dog, and and he's got one specific target, and he's gonna get him, and and there we go. The second one, it starts to kind of unveil the the systems and how it works within mm-hmm. the uh, within the hotel. And but it's still very specific. It's still kind of like one guy, and um, and there there are a couple, but he's focused on on somebody. But mm. we still get this uh, this more the more information on how the system works, how uh, the hotels work, and and all that. With this one, they wanted to go even bigger, and so and so now we discover that there's like this this high table that is also in charge of all of the hotels. Mm. So at first we think, you know, it's that, uh, I can't remember his name, but he's, he's a great actor. He's, he's the old guy that uh, runs the hotel. Ian McShane, yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, and uh, you think that he's like the head honcho, the big man. But then they, they have this girl um, who, who is the high table representative, and her performance is unreal. It's just super cold, super corporate. Like, yeah. just here are the rules. If you don't follow them, you die. You can make your decision, but... You know, th- there will be something that happens accordingly. Yeah. And uh, and I really enjoyed that. And then to also focus more within the action, the, all the mistakes that can that can be made. Like mm. one specific scene we were talking about, I think when we were discussing it on a transmission was um, when we were when they're the throwing knife the throwing, knives. Yeah. And like most movies, you know, they have it it's like stick him in, stick him in. That's just how it goes because he's such an assassin. But with this one, there's so much chaos that it's constantly showing like the butt of the knife hit the guy in the head. And so yeah. it, it, it kind of causes this really, um, it, th- there's more chaos and less uh, precision mm-hmm. in this movie. It's, it's a lot more like John Wick is like being thrown into these glass statues. There's this great one shot down, uh, down like this hall where there's all these glass statues. And in one shot, he just yeah. gets pushed into like eight of them. Yeah. And there's just, I found this one to be a lot more chaotic and he wasn't able to be as precise as he is in the other ones. He's, he's, he's fighting more people this time around. Um, and yeah, we just get more of a look at the system, like how, uh, at a certain time, you know, when he's, uh, Oh, what is, I can't remember the term. It's when you get kicked out of the the whole system. Oh yeah. uh, Uh, and it's like right at 12, they're all looking at the clock and then, Boom, John Wick, $14 million. Everybody's getting cell phone texts and, and they're all looking yeah. for him. And I just loved it. So although I did want it to end, they just, they're so good. I believe in them at this point. Yeah. I think that they can do it. Uh, but I do hope that they have some idea of a final mm-hmm. s- statement or episode or whatever it is. Just because 
I don't want them to get tired because I really love these movies. And, uh, you know, if, if they just start to pull them because of the cash, then it's, I think it's going to get more obvious. Yeah. For, for, you know? for me, cause again, this is, this is as like impeccably made as the other ones are and, yeah. and the way that they, you know, take it, um, into the realm of kind of like the hyper-violent, like Indonesian martial arts films and this one and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. They get some um, stars that I recognize from like the triple threat movies and stuff like that. It's great. Yeah. Like just like the, the the craft is like, is, is still there. It's very strong, but I remember watching two. And the thing that really stood out to me about two, um, was that, you know, like in the first one, I really liked the first one, but I remember personally, I found the simplistic revenge plot, like, um, not quite as interesting as Mm. what they do in two, which was like a really stylish deconstruction of John's craft of him, which I mean, you have these amazing craftsmen making a movie about another guy's craft, but his craft of killing people where he's, he's, it's really exciting. He's really good at it, but it's just constantly undermined number two by the realization that he is destroying his own body and soul by doing it in the way that he goes into that final sequence where it's reflections of the soul and he's gunning people down and getting blood all over the mirrors and the neon lights covering him and stuff like that. And I do like, 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 like like, to me, that was like real sad boy action cinema stuff. And chapter three um, is doing similar things. Yeah. But I he just, still does take a toll. Like he sacrifices, like he cuts off his finger. Yeah. He gets branded in the back t- so he can c- continue this, this odyssey. But yeah, it's just, it's just funny. Cause the way that they've constructed is that now they have to figure out how to kind of keep going, going. when I, the whole thing is that he's trying to get out and get out. And, and you can feel that the filmmakers aren't trying to get him out anymore. Like they're trying to find ways to keep him in and to keep this going. Yeah. I know what you're saying. So like, that was the one thing that held I it back. I think that actually might be an interesting, if they can kind of correlate that to the next one where yeah. it's almost like, I don't know, even the, <laughs> the franchise itself is keeping John Wick alive and he yes. just wants to die. Like what it, it's like at the end, he could like look to us and just be like, it's you <laughs> like yeah. shoot us. It's also worth noting that three has uh, Lawrence Fishburne yelling. Sometimes you got to cut, cut a motherfucker. A motherfucker. <laughs> he is electric in this. He's like, cause he's really good in the other ones. I don't think he's in the first one. He's no, he's in only second, in two. Right? Yeah. Uh, cause he's really good in the second one, but this one, it seems like he was able to, to, to be a little more animated. He's, well, he, he's, he's, he has less screen time in the third one, but they yes. give him crazier lines. Yeah. The lines like, like they, they make every scene he's in count in the third one. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Uh, so yeah, that'll be my, uh, number six, number six. All right. Uh, my number five, Hey, I'll be able to go through this one a little bit faster cause it's parasite. <laughs> Oh, nice. Because Jamie already said it, and uh, I basically agree with most of what Jamie said. I think that it was like yeah. just uh, so directed good. by South Korean filmmaker Bong Joon-ho, who obviously did um, some of the best South Korean films of uh, recent memory, um, including um, The Host, Mother, uh, My Personal Favorite Memories of Murder, which is just one of the just all-time best like uh, check detectives out. obsessing over a serial killer case and having to wrestle with the reality that they might not ever solve it and that you know it's, it's messier. Parasite, um, unlike Memories of Murder, is a little bit uh, slicker. It's a little bit more, um, you can feel the gears of it going a little bit. It's very masterfully constructed. But the way that I described it was that it was kind of when we were doing the bonus transmission that it was kind of like a screenwriter's film where it was like there's all these interlocking pieces introduced and you kind of watch him hit each one like a Goldberg machine where it's like the ball comes down and then it knocks over the domino, which knocks over the tower, which is like you feel you feel the way that he's constructed it and all these kind of like 
clever, manufactured, kind of like shiny surface level ways. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it kind of works for the movie because it's in part about how the shiny surfaces of like the the sort of like uh, financial and capital accumulation um, distracts us from the horrifying conditions that exist in order to sustain that system. So, you know, a lot of the time these people are, these poor people are, have to be cleverer to survive in, in these poorer communities and to sort of climb their way up the ranks. But the only thing that they can imagine is climbing their way up the ranks. They're not imagining changing the system or finding another way, or they're imagining themselves becoming the next rich family. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of a lot of the tension of the film is them slowly parasitically, entering the home and then when they go out and they think that they own the place and they're like this is our house it's so beautiful and then they're immediately when the family gets home they're like holy shit it's not our house and there's like (laughs) this half hour long (laughs) suspense sequence where then they go down into the basement and there's the subterranean horror aspect to it um and again the way that it just fuels itself and it changes from family drama to heist movie to satirical farce to subterranean horror all about the perverse and mutating relationship of unequal and transactional class relationships that these poor people have with the rich family. And that's how they get jobs. That's how they get success. Um, And just the way that, you know, they can't, no matter how hard they try, they can't cross that boundary. They can't get that far. And the way that that dad, when he's looking at like, you know, the carnage, which we won't spoil of the final situation. And all that dad is thinking about is the the smell of poor people when he covers his nose because he's, he, he smells subway or he smells like, you know, like people who have to take public transportation and stuff. And that really kind of like sets them off. So, but either way, it feels like Bong Joon-ho is getting at the fact that, you know, the seams of the current capitalist system in South Korea are starting, are like ripping. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's made a film about watching them rip, about watching, you know, these uh, characters who have to suffer these precarities and in- indignities and anxieties and is asking, how could you possibly not think that this was going to have a violent reaction or a violent destination? And yeah. um, the way that the characters have to live with that. And again, the, f- the way that it works also as a family drama is still compelling too. So it's a, you oh, know, yeah. it's got a thematic depth to it and it's got, um, and very, very well constructed. It's not quite my favorite Bong Joon-ho film, but like if this is even your third or second or third best film, it's like, you're a pretty damn good fucking filmmaker, yeah. <laughs> but you're number five. Uh, my number five, I'm hoping this, this counts. I'm almost certain that it does, but you can let me know if I, uh, if okay. I fucked up uncut gems. I counted it. Good. Because it's here. Uh, the way yeah. that, the, the way that I said it, it's kind of, it's a crime. That's crime. what I, that's as I was watching it, I was feeling like I've seen, not, I have not seen something like it, but we've, we've watched movies on the show where it's kind of just showing somebody in a scene and just aggressively self-destructing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, you, you have plenty of, like, mobster ties and stuff like that. So I felt like it definitely counted. Um, and, uh, yeah, Adam Sandler, man, he's been killing it yeah. these past couple of years. Like, his, his, his comedy, his stand-up comedy that he did last year was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and then he comes out with this this year, and he is a powerhouse. I had no idea that he was capable of this, because I haven't seen... Um, the, the, what is it called? The Merowitz story? Merowitz stories. Yeah. yeah I and then, seen and then that Punch yet. Drunk Love. Have you seen? Punch I have Drunk seen that. Yes. And yeah. he is very impressive in, in that film. Uh, but there's something about this where he's playing like such a. I'm used to his more angry, kind of a dumb guy vibe, you right. know. And with this, he's he's very uh, he's calculated in a very chaotic way. 
but he has steps that he wants to take. I get overwhelmed. This movie gets gives me so much anxiety. I can't even believe it. Yeah. Because just seeing him go from scene to scene, like you know, he he gets you know. 20 grand or whatever for something you're like okay this guy's solid like he's got 20 grand that's that's a, that's some good security money you know he'll be fine what does he do takes the 20 grand right away goes to like a pawn shop you know like trades in something else and he's like oh I'll get it back to you in a week Places then takes that goes back to some some other place makes a deal with them and you're like dude you've just spent four different people's money hoping that you get it back and you gain profit and that you can give it all back to these people who were are most likely capable of killing you if you don't. Yeah. You know, so it's just like you're constantly watching this man just self-destruct and make yeah. bad decisions, but it's also so thrilling and and because you know the the consequences, yeah. you want him to succeed even though what he's doing is like bad. Like it's not a good thing. It's not yeah. a good trait to have. It's a likable guy. No, he's not a, right, he's not a likable guy, but you want him to succeed because his success connects to his family. It connects to the, the the girl that he's dating, you know, and you and you don't want them to go through all the hell. Mm-hmm. So in order for that to happen, this asshole has to has to succeed with whatever he's trying to accomplish. And so you get this really kind of uh, weird thing inside where you don't know what you want to feel about him, you yeah. know. Uh, and then there's that great scene where it kind of he breaks down the whole character. Mm-hmm. and uh, where he's in front of his wife. And it's like the one scene where he can't really convince how mm. smooth he is through his words. And he's like, come on, come on, give me a chance, right? Mm. And she just looks at him with like, just complete Yeah, disgust. played by like, Adina Menzel. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic performance by her too. Um, everybody, also Julia Fox. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my God. <laughs> She's so talented too. Like that scene with... Uh, uh, you were talking about it where she gets the ass tattoo. Oh, yeah. And, like, she's, like, super enthusiastic. Then you have Adam Sandler doing that one thing, uh, you can't even get buried next to me now or something like that. Yeah. Oh, man. I And certain things didn't... Uh, yeah, because that's a very uh, Jewish detail, right? Right, because I didn't know certain things. And when yeah. you were telling me about certain jokes, it, it just, it made it even better. Um, yeah, there's just a ton of, of, of great detail to the film, and it's a non-stop, like, anxiety attack ridden attack on on the senses for sure yeah the soundscape and stuff with like there's constantly like 10 people talking over each other all the time yeah the fact that you can hear anyone in this movie is kind of insane. (laughs) it's insane and i won't spoil anything because the ending is unreal good yeah and uh, i saw it in a theater twice and both times i've seen it in a theater um, audible gasps at yeah. the end of the film. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we yeah. don't want to spoil. And I also can't wait to see what uh, what Julia Fox does because she's blowing up now. Everyone's fucking talking about her. Yeah. At, at least out of what I've seen on like film Twitter and stuff. So I'm yeah, looking man. forward to seeing what what she does because that was her breakout role, right? Yep, first oh, movie. Nuts, crazy. Yeah, and uh, if you felt like I wasn't jumping in too much there, that's because we're gonna hit it up. Yeah, I figured a little bit higher I f- here. In I a figured. Moment. I'm like, I <laughs> so know we'll, you got, I so know we'll, you got things to say. So we'll be back. We'll be right back. <laughs> um, so that was your number five. Yeah. So number my five. number four is a little bit of a cheat because most people will consider this a television show. But Too Old to Die Young. <laughs> You're Nicholas, doing it, Nicholas Winding Refn. He directed all ten episodes. It's fucking thirteen hours long. That's but, insanity. But I had to do it. You showed me like 10 minutes of it today and I'm so convinced to watch it. It's unreal. Yeah. It, it might honestly be my favorite thing that he's made. Yeah. Uh, like, wow. watch, like watching it now. And I've, I've liked a lot of the stuff that, that I definitely got to watch it. Like made. I love drive. Like I yeah. fucking five drive. I just, but if love you like Nick winding ref and you like his neon lit brooding, yep. you love the slow Zams, pants, the cliff Martinez, Martinez score, 
the like philosophical like wankery and bursts of like <laughs> yeah. repulsive fetish violence and all of that stuff if you like all that and you want to see what it was like if he experimented by making it 13 fucking hours, hours long, long. <laughs> denying all rules of like television like again the reason i'm gonna do this is just because like n- the episodes are not clearly delineated at all yeah like there's no episodic structure to this really the whole argument once i once i see it yeah so. like it, it feels designed to watch in a single sitting even if it's not like it, it, <laughs> even it can't if you're be. not capable of it yeah <laughs> yeah like it like it doesn't feel like he came at it from i'm gonna write this episode and then this episode it feels like he just wrote one long script and then kind of like split it up from there um so the length is unbearable and it's very (laughs) abstract and stylish and again all of the bleeding lights and electronic droning and stuff the way that he's accumulated it all here into like this really pulp story of a um a sort of crime procedural that is more about like miles teller like wrestling with like the collapse of american society and like what that means for this cop who's also dating an underage girl whose father is a porn producer (laughs) and he's also hunting down a pedophile ring but he's technically he's technically a pedophile but he's hunting down pedophile rings yeah so you're sitting here and you're like just like how old is the daughter how far do they go uh she's 16 (laughs) and like just turned 16 okay and he's like 30 or something (laughs) fucking reffing man So, like, he intentionally (laughs) hammers that home that the cop, the contradiction of, like, the lawlessness and also the repulsiveness of the law at the same time. And he's hitting all of this stuff, but he's done it again in this kind of, like, ghostly, like, really repulsive overall style shot by experimental film cinematographer Diego Garcia for all the Mexican cartel stuff because it's also mixed up in a Mexican cartel family drama. Okay. Uh, which is a, a, its own subplot entirely. Yeah. Um, and then the other stuff is all shot by Darius Kanji, who also shot Uncut Gems. Oh, hell yeah. Um, and again, this is all just so crazy. And a lot of people compared it to Twin Peaks, The Return, David Lynch, obviously sustaining his vision for like, you know, 20 hours or however many hours it was for Twin Peaks, The Return. Right. But it's Nick Winding Refn doing that. And it's just this apocalyptic odyssey of like, just perversity and depravity and uh, kind of how we've built societal structures over top of them in hopes of covering them up. But, you know, they're always bleeding in and there's so much gross stuff that happens in this show. I can't even describe it all to you because, again, it's 13 (laughs) hours. But one thing that has to be pointed out is that, you know, I was skeptical of the show when I was watching the first couple episodes because I had so slow. I have no idea what Winding Refn was trying to say about like he, he enters the realm of like political satire with the cops. Like he has the cops like doing this thing that they're like they they write like uh something like fascism is goodism on like the, <laughs> the the wall in the in the police station and stuff like it's just it's so absurd and like cartoonish yeah, and i had i had no idea I laugh what, my ass off when i see that that's i have so no funny. idea what winding refin was like really going for there fascism is goodism. but the way that he holds it and he, <sighs> he you you feel that he thinks it means something to the point where yeah. it actually ends up working and i showed you the mandy sequence yeah which is where miles teller has like hunt killed down this like leader of a pedophile ring and he's getting chased across a highway by the two henchmen and you know nothing about these two henchmen you don't like you know nothing about their emotional lives and they're chasing him down and the way that he's filmed the chase scene is a crossfade superimposed neon montage to barry manilow's mandy 
where they are mourning the loss of this pedophile. (laughs) (laughs) Their pedophile friend. And and there's Miles Teller, whose lit neon red face has a single tear dropping down, and the tear is the the white white lines lines. on the road because it's crossfading the road with his face. This is some deep macho shit right here. Yeah, and I just, I gotta say, like, the way that he takes cues from neo-noir and and, and westerns and brief and, like, detours into these moving and surreal sequences just, like, out of nowhere. Yeah. uh, Really, really powerful. And by the time I hit, like, seven or eight hours in, I was like, I think this is the best thing I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) even though i still can't say exactly what it's all about i just was completely mesmerized by it um and billy baldwin plays the porn producer dad too and he's just constantly doing like coke sniffs like even when he's not he's just like he's like like, all the time (laughs) god just what a what a fucking show i gotta say dude that's unreal so give it a check out because nick winding reffin says that he was inspired by the i guess he said that he was inspired by the trump stuff but mostly just because he he liked the idea of because he has this i he liked the idea of like it's like america mask off shit basically was how he saw it and he made like a pulp crime show like his own version of like a moody death wish type thing yeah but mask off like full surreal cartoony shit oh man (laughs) i'm definitely watching that as honestly the five minutes you showed me was like i'll watch all 13 hours of this shit there's no way i won't so that's my number four nice my number four is midsummer oh i ended up loving this movie good i uh it's basically like an extra hour. I was really of the sad Wicker I couldn't Man. put it on. Yeah. yeah, it's like the Wicker Man, but with an extra hour of detail, <laughs> and uh, and I just love it. I love. Uh, I absolutely enjoyed the the character of I, what's his name. It's a is it? I think the actor's name is Jack. He's the he's the guy that's also in Sing Street. He plays the older brother. Uh, Christian. He plays in the movie. Okay, Christian. Uh, watching his character who was at first just kind of a piece of shit, like just kind of uh, a bad boyfriend, not the best friend, but still someone that you maybe could have a beer with. Not very you know? present in the relationship. Doesn't want to be in it. No, no. And, he, and I love the writing in this because it is so perfect uh, when it comes to showing these little white lies that you're doing within the relationship. Like when he's talking to his friends, for instance, at the beginning, telling them about, they're talking about the Sweden trip. Yeah. And then she goes, oh, you're you're going to the Sweden the Sweden trip? I yeah. thought you weren't going to it. And he's just like, oh, well, no, I'm not. I'm not totally decided yet. And then she's like, but you just told me that you guys bought the ticket. And, and he's, you know, uh, well, yeah, but it's still up in the air. You know, we're not totally sure. And all his friends are right there going, well, we, we know you're going. Yeah. Like, but we have to stay silent because we don't want to cause shit between your girlfriend. And that whole vibe is just... It just amplifies as the film goes until the point where it's a direct like connection with the with the actual cult stuff that's going on. Right. And be, then be, because her, the cult doesn't the idea of the cult is that they are they are exactly what they are on the surface. They don't right. pretend that stuff. No, even, even they're if revealed they, they reveal the murder aspect of their rituals within the first 30 minutes of them being there. Yeah, and out in the open and saying, this is just honest. Yeah. And <laughs> and it's like if you want to, to leave at this point, fine, but this is what we do. And uh, you have to accept it if you're going to be here. And then because they're, you know, they're doing a theory for their, their university degree, um, you know, they, they choose to stay and dive deeper into the culture and all that. And yeah. unfortunately, that pretty much ends with <laughs> a lot of their demise. But uh, it's um, I, I 
think watching her go from this really lonely, um, miserable state, transforming into into something where she like feels like she has a family now, but it's like all a- based on the sacrifice of her boyfriend, the sacrifice of her friends, mm-hmm. and just kind of her accepting being belonging in this crazy cult yeah. because they've essentially propped her up and yeah. said like you're you're the queen you're 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 you can belong here you can connect here um and there's nothing left for you back in america so mm-hmm. you know and and then that fucking shot of her almost as if she's become like this A creature of nature slug. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the burning pyramid uh cross fade bur- yeah. with her face oh my god it's unbelievable and it's really impactful and then also just small thoughts like uh the, the the belief that these uh, cultists had within the, their their uh, um, their rituals and things like that, like for instance, if you drink this, you'll feel no pain when you're burned. And the last thing that you see when they set fire to the uh, to the to the building is that he fucking is that he's screaming, like he feels it all, but he believed it until that right. point, which is like. The way that it's shot, it's like a joke, but it's like a really horrifying joke. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I also just love the attention to detail that he does with the cult. Like Mm -hmm. with the Wicker Man, they don't go too far into it. They leave it more mysterious. Whereas this one is like they have books upon their history and they have a whole – like walls of, of images. I was going to say, have, have you watched the director's cut? Because I haven't watched it yet. Apparently no, there's an extra the half theater. hour and the extra Holy half hour shit. is supposed to be like just more of the ritual cult stuff apparently. Wow. No, I see. I only watched it the one time in the theater. Yeah, that's all I've watched it too. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely checking that out. That sounds awesome. And also just to wrap that this up, uh, the thoughts of Midsummer to watch the movie, the ending, and then have, you know, like we said earlier, a couple basically break up in front of you because of just the, the this constant yeah. these thoughts on relationships and and how maybe yeah because he the girl said looks he, at he it. got up during the credits and said I don't know that he deserved that and and Which the girl he's right by the way the girl who was <laughs> well yeah because the movie walks that line of like like clearly this is a cathartic relief for her yes but clearly it is also horror or yeah yes. exactly so like that's the you're that's, not supposed to just be like well he cheated on her so of course he should be burned in a fucking right and, and also it's worth acknowledging too that what she thinks is cheating was actually him being raped too yeah, yeah that yeah like drugged exactly. and, put, and forced into it right exactly. um, so he definitely like Ari Aster intentionally has that contradiction yeah. be the end of the film and it's really brilliant the way that clearly men felt very like i would like not to be killed that way and women were like i completely understand why she felt that way (laughs) so (laughs) and then and then to watch smash (laughs) right after we see the movie directly to our right uh, like a personified (laughs) version of it was just yes oh man she said she said that's rich coming from you of all people was what she said (laughs) so i think there's a little bit of a past yeah and they Uh, they silently walked out of that it just it was the cherry on top to an already amazing film and it connected so well with the experience that we just watched I, I was like that was destiny right there yes uh, so yeah I, I totally agree four. I wish I could have fit it on the list I, I would have it probably honestly would have been number 11 or like I could yeah. have even done another top 10 tie there yeah um, because again the way that it takes that folk horror stuff to it but combines it with like modern relationship stuff and how mm. one exacerbates the other one basically and the tension is always there between also the two also love how they use the psychedelics to create like how the nature is breathing like there's yes. shots where the mountains look like they're actually pulsating <laughs> and like like their lungs right. 
It's it's great. And the way that it's theor- technically about like cutting toxic people out of your life is kind of like the yeah. the, the way that she she feels about <laughs> yeah. it. And I think when New we Year's did the, resolution when we did the bonus transmission, uh, I think I said something along the lines of, "It all comes down to that." the Scandinavian murder cult was more emotionally available than the boyfriend yeah. was is all it was. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Um, and some of the, like the gross, like the horror imagery, like was almost ripped straight from Hannibal, like that angel that, uh, wings that are being pulled apart and stuff yeah. like that. And again, the emotional self actualization through just this gorgeous, violent extremity, <laughs> is just, I found, like, and the way that he makes it emotionally effective while still showing you horror imagery is just, it's really powerful. And again, the way, we've talked about it a lot, but, like, Ari Aster, he's so farcically cruel in his movies. Yeah, that that there's almost a humor He fucking scares me sometimes. Yeah, (laughs) for real. I'm like, what's going on, bro? Talk to somebody. (laughs) Yeah, man, he's just, the way that Keep making your movies, though. Because when he talks about his movies, he's always talking about them as, like, art dramas and stuff. And I'm like, dude, if you think that that's, like, an art drama, what's a horror movie to you? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like, has he actually made a horror movie in his mind yet? Yeah, so I, you know... (laughs) I think that he's just an incredibly vivid, idiosyncratic filmmaker right now. Yeah. And even though, you know, some his, his camera moves are very controlled and he's pulling from like this history of art film and stuff like that, like his actual subject matter is disgusting. Yep. And uh, I find that, that, con- that the contradiction between like this, this beautiful, very calm style that he has yep. and the, his move, slow camera moves and everything and what he actually writes about. Yeah. <laughs> are complete is completely unhinged and i just find that contradiction like really really awesome to watch so i'm glad jamie put I it agree. on his list i agree and that was your number three four, four? yeah so three, three for me uncut gems baby nice um directed so obviously written and directed by the safety brothers obviously they did a good time um they did uh daddy long legs about their dad and they did heaven knows what the poverty um the sort of junky uh neon drama there about uh the kids living on the streets and stuff nice. um uncut gems is like probably their biggest most expensive film is this your favorite now do you think i, just I, I go back and forth between this and good time i feel yeah, like good time, i, so I feel good. like whichever one i watch uh <laughs> most recently most recently <laughs> yeah. is probably the one i like the most and i i to be fair i've watched uncut gems three times since tiff i saw nice. it at tiff um i watched it um um and then i took the girlfriend and her parents to go and see it in theaters as well and now we're gonna play it at the movie theater at our theater here in town yeah, so i'm probably I'm gonna so watch it stoked. again oh my god um but I did a lot of research when I, because I actually reviewed this film at TIFF and I watched a lot of the Safety Brothers stuff and I just love that in all of their films, they um, have two contradictory things going at the same time, which is one, their father, total hustler. Yeah. And one of the brothers really loves the father and kind of forgives him for a lot of the stuff that damage they caused their family. And the other brother is a lot more uh, upset with him. Oh, so you can kind of get that within like. Well, the- and yeah, and in the documentary on the Criterion channel that they have where they t- introducing Josh and Benny Safi or whatever, you can, they interview them individually yeah. and you can see them like talking about each other. He's like, yeah, he really likes him and wants to talk to him. And like, I'm now a dad and I see the way that my dad treated me and I don't want him and like as part of my life. And, um, so this movie is based on stories that their dad told them while he was working in the diamond district, exactly where Adam Sandler's working. Okay. 
and they clearly have an affection for the art and craft of of, of hustling, the yeah. process of manipulation and social coercion to like get your way, and the skill that it takes. The same way, it kind of like in Parasite, like it takes a skill yeah. that you have to learn. You're constantly a salesman. You're constantly trying it's to manipulate exhausting. your surroundings. Yeah, like and then, I, I couldn't do it. There's no way. It's so, just, so they they capture the skill of how exhausting and claustrophobic it is. Yeah, and then also the inherent like pain of it the way that you treat people like transactional interactions and the sadness and the the rippling consequences sometimes the physical harm of it like the way that you manipulate other people and you stop pretending or you stop you basically ignore the fact that there are real people that you're yeah. fucking with all the time and adam sandler's that whole time where he's pulling money pulling stuff and like we don't know like when he loses like a hundred grand or something like that loses someone's object you're like he's probably another Adam Sandler character who probably needed that to like make his own deal. So yeah. you're sitting there going like, he's just screwing up everyone's life around him and yeah. he's skilled at what he does, but you can tell that he's been doing it for like decades yeah. and that the seams are ripping that he's, yeah. you know, he's, 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 a, there's something older and wearier about this than in good time. Good time is like him, Robert Pattinson, like very thornily abusing everyone in, in his vicinity to get his brother out of jail. Yeah. But it's very clear that it's a young man's film. Yes. Adam Sandler here, there's something wearier. There's something more clearly he's been doing this for yeah, a long you, you time. You can feel the decades of, of experience within his character. Yeah. And Adam Sandler, just a total whirlwind of like concentrated, like compulsion and the way that he like, you know, I could watch him for hours, like run around yelling and sweating around New York inside like music venues and cabs and his like Gucci loafers and for his real. hilarious outfits. I could outfits. watch a four hour version of this 100%. It's just so much <laughs> fun. Um, and there's no better indication of his craft than that one scene that you mentioned too, where he negotiates with Garnett that he'll let him take the stone, Kevin Garnett, right. the basketball player. He'll let him take the stone, the uncut gem. Um, if he'll give him his 2008 championship ring, he immediately takes that ring to the pawn shop, puts it down for collateral so he can get the money, so he can use that money to bet on the basketball game that Kevin Garnett's about to play yeah. because he's going to feel lucky holding the stone and all of this. And yeah. I love the line he has, this man's feeling the gem, is what he says yelling at the screen. Dude, the- and I love that the movie doesn't have any uh, sit-down time where he's like, planning it out it's no. literally like he he's gets constantly the thing on his and feet, then he goes spinning boom. plates yeah like it's like it's like he didn't even have to think about it it really yeah. was a natural thing he's like okay well now i have this thing worth about 50 grand well i'll go pawn that and it's it just gives me so much anxiety because i am such a like before i make any decision i like <laughs> think about it for for a decent amount of time and make sure that's what i want and it seems like he lives entirely on impulse yeah he's he's a, exasperated like all of the time sweating and scheming yeah, yeah. And, and like he's seconds away from a crushing failure every, every fucking second. Time, yeah. and, the, and the way that they've shot it is kind of like as a Cassavetes film. I don't know if you've seen much of old John Cassavetes stuff that he like directed, but a lot of people have so. mentioned this is sort of similar to his film, the killing of a Chinese bookie, but he was very famous oh, okay. because he did these very like intense kind of like close up scenes of people in rooms. Yeah. And it was a very, it was kind of like an actor showcase where these people would really like, get get into each other and stuff like that so like they've shot this film in a very similar style like there's no not a lot of wide shots it's a lot of like very intense i heard a lot of, of the people. time too it was adam sandler and the actor and the the camera would be actually very far away on but a they telephoto do the lens close-ups. Yeah. yes and so it was like adam adam i think was mentioning it in a sometimes he wouldn't know brad, when they were he was rolling. talking with brad pitt i think yeah. and some actor thing and he was mentioning that he it started to feel like you know, since he couldn't see the cameras and the people, 
Like yes. he could just kind of like throw himself into the scene that much easier. And that's just an interesting thought, I think, to like, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like, what is it called? It's like guerrilla camera yeah. work or whatever. In yeah. A way. yeah. It was where you like wouldn't know that the camera was there, that they were just kind of filming it on the street. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was very, that was interesting to me. Yeah. And I just find that there's a real sense of melancholy to the overall film with Adam Sandler's character who is kind of like panicked insecurity and determination. Like it really draws in your sympathy because you want to see him succeed. Even if, you know, you can tell that he's making bad decisions and maybe he's not the best dad. And clearly he's a very careless person who is putting people in danger. Like that bit where he gets all the money and you're like, dude, you've done it. You can do it, but he's got to place another bet. He's got it. He's got it. He's got to keep it going. There's so many moments where you're just like, you did it. And then you come on, just stop, just stop. Yes. And the way that it's wrapped into a larger ethnic detail of the film where the Safdie brothers, um, obviously, um, very, very Jewish guys, Adam Sandler, um, grew up like working in a lot of these like Jewish community centers and stuff like that. And the way that they've infused the Jewishness into the film, it was really awesome taking, um, my girlfriend's family to see it. Uh, and like all the bits where it was like, uh, uh, Jews and colon cancer. What's with that? That kind of stuff. Yeah. And but specifically, also um, when I ended up talking about the film at dinner with her parents afterward, and they were telling stories about like gambling addict uncles and stuff like that who like lost the houses, and a lot of the experience of like first generation Jewish immigrants into these places, right. obviously you know, they would have been put into places like the Diamond District. They would have been uh, sometimes they would have been. Um, uh, entering criminal lives. Her dad was talking about like knowing dudes who joined like the mob and got into selling drugs in New York and got into like flying those planes to Columbia and stuff like right. that. They were like the naturally there's something sort of, um, desperate and precarious about that Jewish immigrant experience that Adam Sandler just, you, you feel that oh, yeah. in the film where he's just like, he's constantly feeling like, you know, what makes him good at what he does is this exasperated skill, this desire to succeed, to get ahead because he has to. He, he you know, he's naturally behind um, because of the experiences of his people. So he has to like be better. He has yeah. to like outwit people. He I has fi- to do this. And then that pushes him also to his downfall yeah. at the same time. And I find it interesting that he's only doing this for himself too. Yeah. You know, like it, it most of the time if there's like some type of real addiction or, or, or uh, like in this sense, I mean, you almost feel like they're doing it so that they can, uh, I don't know, uh, get the respect of their family with the money or mm-hmm. just something like that. But this seems like the whole time it's just a game to him. You know, like it's just like it's just what thrills him. It's what it, it's what makes him feel alive, basically. Yeah. And I find that very interesting because there's no stopping him at that point then. You know, like no. if it's just for him, then that's it. Well, yeah. And, and it's been ingrained into him because, right. it, because it has to be. That's how he has yeah. to. Sa- same way with Parasite, yeah. the way that the poor people have to survive. They have to adapt these skills in order to do that he has to do the same thing it is interesting though him instead of like just like with with parasite right it's like the poor family just trying to get a normal job this time he's dealing with like hundreds of thousands of dollars and just tossing it away well that also gets you into the industry of that because it's also obviously a little bit of critique of the jewelry industry and the way i mean it opens in ethiopia where they are exploiting like poor african workers and their bodies in order to just mine this stuff and even kevin garnett says you were going to pay yourself 10 times what you paid them for it and stuff like that like they talk about like this idea of again shiny surfaces and then like the real bodily consequences of it which obviously that also involves the opening where it goes into the shiny cosmicness of the gem and then into his own body like again it was crazy communicating like communicating (laughs) directly 
the shiny surfaces into the fleshy people who make it run. And yeah. like, like again, the sequence was nuts. It, the Safety brothers, I think are just legitimate geniuses. Um, yeah. And this is just, I uh, can't wait to see an, their am- careers an amazing, amazing film. Um, and again, the way that they clearly have affection for their father, but they're also very aware that like he hurt their family and walk that line all the time of yeah. sort of like, um, affection and abuse all the time and it's just it's so dramatic and claustrophobic and hard to watch half the time sure. um so i i can understand if anyone is maybe turned off by that but it's, yeah, I it's mean, totally that's the thing. you are gonna feel some anxiety while watching this movie but it's uh it, it's all worth it and and what an explosive finale too totally. so um your number three my number three is high life uh this Beauty. movie is very dark uh but the thing is is that i feel like it's more hopeful and less nihilistic than than it like at at first presents itself to be because you know you have first they they open up with like a good i don't know 20 25 minutes of like just robert Robert pattinson Pattinson on a spaceship with a baby right and it's adorable like you do feel his uh right away we have something where it's like the baby obviously uh, stops him from doing certain things, like when she starts crying or, or screams and kind of freaks him out. He drops one of the essential tools into deep space, and he's never gonna have that fucking thing again. Yeah, you know. So it right away shows that although that he obviously loves his daughter, within this environment, it's very difficult to have the normal daughter father relationship. Obviously. Yeah. And then I like that they set it up that way, and then show you like the, the middle stuff where it's like the actual yeah, interaction. Like, there's there's like the these el- elliptical flashbacks that come right. through of like how it ended up that there is Robert Pattinson and a baby alone yeah. maintaining a spaceship going into deep space. Right. So how did we get here? Kind and of this, uh, the, the, the idea of like the, the, the reproduction of, 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 uh, human beings and In whether space. or not, right. <laughs> and whether or not like some characters are basically just like, it's not, it's not worth it at this point like what we're gonna bring uh and that is the nihilistic part of the film i would say it's just kind of like there's characters that just believe that it's hopeless well some believe it's not worth it but then also there's the idea is is it possible because they talk about the idea of like the radiation poisoning the babies in space or something like that that they can't live without like the natural organic environment or something like that right and i think at the by the end of the film it's essentially saying like i think even if we all end up in a black hole and uh we don't know what's on the other side. I think the 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 effort uh, put forth to to you know continue loving, to continue um, believing in something. The rituals, uh, yeah, it's human it's, rituals. There's something there that is has meaning itself, and that I think can kinda can kind of destroy the, the nihilism. Yeah, yeah, because that's the thing. At the end of the at the end of the day, because if it doesn't, what the fuck are we exactly, doing? <laughs> like they'd have no motivation to do anything. And I know that that may be kind of a cop-out where it's like, well, maybe that is nihilism. You know, it's like if, if, if I can say that there isn't, there wasn't anything to believe in at that point except just believing in something, yeah. then maybe that is nihilism. But I don't know. I, I think that humans are, are you know, that we're constantly trying to find some type of meeting even in the most dire circumstances. And this film 
shows the most <laughs> like horrible circumstances. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a. I mean, we were just talking about Uncut Gems being a tough sit. This is a tougher sit. I yeah, think. I think so too. Especially yeah. when we get to like the the sexual frustrations uh, with one specific male. All of the rapes. Um, yeah, and they're very brutal. Like it's. I, they, I don't. I don't think there's a single act of like actual sex in the film. I think it's all basically rape for the yep, most part. It is even the one that's um that's. And and that what's interesting. This is the big thing that that I noticed the second time watching it was the first one where it shows the the guy uh, sexually assaulting the girl, mm-hmm. and it's just such a brutally violent scene. Like he punches yeah. two of them that are screaming for the other guys to help, and 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 he really punches them. Like it's it's yeah. it, it is a it's whole brutal. hard beating. Yeah. No, she's then, she's tackling sexual violence in right. society. But then I, I like that the next scene. Essentially, I think there might be like a five minute thing. But basically, the next scene is when Robert Pattinson gets raped while he's and, been but, knocked out. Right, and his is like because the girl is is motivated by um, wanting the human race to continue and everything. Whatever, yeah. She does it in this like loving way. Right. So, so you feel gross because you're like, I'm watching a rape, but she's doing it with like actual compassion. Like and she it's thinks so, she is anyway. Right. Yeah. Oh, of course. I'm not saying there yeah. is. What I'm saying is just, it's interesting to have that scene and then have that scene. Yes. They're very stylistically and tonally like different right. sequences for sure. And, uh, yeah, Claire, I, I gotta check more of her movies Claire Denis, like, she's I've phenomenal. seen these, uh, I, I've watch listed a bunch and it seems like she goes to some You would love her vampire movie, I think. What's that called? Uh, Trouble Every Day. Yeah, I think I think that's is that the one um, where you literally uh, reviewed it with just like a teeth bearing emoji where you're like, yeah. oh, that was some <laughs> shit right there, man. Yeah, if you ever wanted to know what sexual violence, including like eating women out, would look like, but with vampires. Oh fuck! Oh my god! Yeah, yep. she she's out there, and I appreciate her. And then um, she she also did a really uh, gruesome neo noir called Bastards, which also involves like uh, okay. sex trafficking rings and stuff too. So, Dang. so she she dives into the the sexual stuff. She, quite she's a bit, pretty. Huh? In, she uh, sexual violence is like a thing that's like very interesting to her as a yeah. filmmaker. And sure. uh, I'm gonna just jump right in with you because my number two is High Life. Oh, there you go. So Do I'm gonna up. join right in here. That yeah. Works well. um, again, directed by French uh, filmmaker Claire Denis. Um, it's drawn all kinds of comparisons to like 60s and 70s cerebral sci-fi films like 2001 yeah, and Solaris. It's, it's kind of like lo-fi, right? yeah. minimalist kind of sci-fi sure. filmmaking. It's not like that hyper tech or anything like that. It's, no, uh, it's clearly limited like by by the budget because like she can't render space very much. Like it's kind of clearly just a black room that like yeah. she just kind of like throws bodies in. Like they don't do the floating bodies in space. They do like the thing where they just fall yeah. and it's completely silent. I love though the it, how they like kind of fall extremely slowly yeah. and that's when the title card pops up. Highlight. It's like him. I was like, oh shit, this is how you're going to open up your film. Yeah, and again, <laughs> it's 20 the, minutes into the film too. The, the class-based reality of it where they're sending, where they're like, earth is dying what do we do send the criminals let's just fuck around with criminals i guess and see what happens so they take these kids some of whom were just like homeless people who were thrown in jail yeah and then they send them um into space to both perform sexual experiments on them and try to reproduce see if they can reproduce in space to continue the human race and then also the other plan is send them around a black hole and see um, if they can harness its rotating energy or if they can get through it or what happens like around the black hole. So sort yeah. of similar to Interstellar in that way, but like a really 
art house, really gruesome Interstellar. Yeah, like that sequence. Like we, it's 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 interesting. You just said that because in Interstellar they have that warp hole sequence yeah. where they start to stretch and stuff. Yeah, and in this one they do the same thing, but they're like, but the body itself is also being distorted on a physical level. Exactly. It's not like exactly. it's not like it adapts. It's your your bones are being stretched to the point where the fucking blood just splatters into the into, into the, the mask, mask and yeah. you're like yeah and, oh my and god the, the vfx supervisor for that sequence the guy who did uh twin peaks so, oh hell yeah so if that felt to you at all like david lynchian almost style sure. horror that would be why yeah it, that was a devastating death like it's just so horrific to watch yes so again just the way that she attacks like the mundanity of of this kind of like the routines and the memories that they go through, like the sort of nonlinear elliptical structure that they have, where they're like recalling the 16 millimeter past life on earth and then up in space where they're being, you know, uh, obviously they don't have bodily autonomy and like the horror, right. like it's a horror movie the, of not being, having control over your own body. Yeah, there's of, no choice basically in, in this No, they, they have to be constant. All the women are artificially inseminated. Um, pretty much most of the characters at some point are, are raped and they're not even allowed to have, like romantic relationships with each other that are yeah given, and that's the thing they're, too. They're, they're given the fuck box that's the thing too it's like which it's is like, like this they mystical want, yeah this doctor is, is trying so hard to to uh have more babies and stuff but the love doesn't seem like it, like she doesn't want that to be a thing which is a very i don't know i don't necessarily know what her motivation for that would be because also when she sexually assaults uh uh, Pattinson, like there, it seems like she's got, she does have some love there. Now I think the love comes more from like, she feels like this is the answer. Like, uh, like this is going to be the solution. So maybe that's where she's getting her, her excitement. Well, she's definitely, well, because she killed her children, I think was why she was there. Okay. Yeah. And I think they suggest that have, she's in love with this idea of having like another a second baby. chance. In yes. A sense. Yeah, another yeah, baby yeah. that she's, she's really emotionally attached to this t- idea right. of creating a baby in space, which is why she keeps trying, even though it's not working and everyone, all the people are obviously just getting frustrated with her yeah. because all they do all day are these mo- monotonous, like, rituals where they like tend the garden or they like read books and hang out on the ship basically right. in between being like sexually assaulted basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, and meanwhile they are living this monotonous existence on the ship where at any, any day if they don't check in, the life support will be shut off. Uh-huh. Like if they're not constantly maintaining those rituals all the time. Um, so the way that Denis like blurs the time and space kind of like between those timelines, like the electric humming and stuff that's constantly on the ship. And sometimes you'll hear it even in the 16 millimeter flashbacks on earth before it became unlivable and stuff like that. Um, and then we got to say again, the way that it gets to kind of like the ending of the film and that's what made me love the film. And Robert Pattinson has basically just shown you all of these sort of like societal horrors of, of, and how, how a parent could witness all of those things and be like, I'm going to bring a child into this world and I'm going to try and make that world better for them. And it's like what she details is the experience of like maybe the responsibility that parents have to endure that. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, I don't have any kids. I don't know when I'm going to have kids or anything like that, but I watched the film and I really empathized with the idea of being a parent in that situation where Robert Pattinson has this baby on the ship 
and he's looking at it and it's so innocent, so beautiful. It's going to grow up. It's going to become something. He's trying to shape it into a better person even than him because yeah. he was just a homeless guy who like killed someone over a dog or something like that. Yeah. And he's just like, and I'm, she's looking to me like I'm the most important figure there is. And Earth by now has maybe even like completely destroyed yeah, hundreds of gone. years ago. Who knows? Yeah. She's watching like transmissions of them praying and stuff like that. And he doesn't want to like rip that away from her. Like this idea that right. like, you know, Human Even society though she has like a lack work. of understanding of it. Like, like, yeah, she's she's watching like what might as well be sci-fi. Yeah, and, he, yeah. and he's going, yeah, that religious stuff. Like, some of that basically led to our demise as an entire society and stuff like that. Right. So it's just interesting the that this seemingly futile gesture of raising a child during the last days, like of the apocalypse, almost, mm-hmm. and it really dramatizes that emotional journey. I also love like the line. I I think it might be the last line where it's where she just says like I believe in this one and it's just kind of her going like it's like he has had no hope (laughs) throughout this whole fucking thing and and she is the only ounce of that and for her to to look at him and be like I believe in this one this is and because I don't think like he's even heard something hopeful like that in in at least a a couple decades you know what I mean so I, I even though it might have led to their demise, we don't really know. That's kind of the, the beauty of the ending. It doesn't really matter because I think, you know, at least there was hope and a belief in something at the end of it. Right. That's just it is that the movie doesn't give you any like the movie itself doesn't like give you any evidential proof no. of hope. But even if it's like they are dead or whatever. But it, but it shows a guy who has yeah. experienced all that misery and horror looking at someone who does and wanting to believe. Yeah. And it's almost like that's that's maybe enough that maybe, yeah. maybe his child won't have to experience and endure the same things that he yeah. did. And, that's, and, and, and hopefully he can shelter her from that if, if yeah. possible. And I find that very beautiful. Like it's yeah. – uh, it's – I, I, I remember saying it to you after the movie ended. I was like, I feel a lot more hopeful than I thought I was going to after watching the first hour and a half of the movie. You yeah. know what I mean? Because as I'm watching it, I'm like, this is the most nihilistic, just 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 yeah. horrifying thing yeah. ever. And then at the end, I went, oh, that even that small thing has hope to it. And I, I don't, yeah, it, it, got a, it actually kind of got me in a positive place, oddly enough. Yeah, After because because until horror. that point, the movie is flagrantly like oh, gross so and cruel, <laughs> and the way that it accesses like this biological horror of bodily autonomy and stuff like that, and again, the way that she sensually films the film, it's gross. Like there's bodily fluids all over this film. There's like yeah. scenes of semen and stuff in this film, and and milk. And that one scene we talked about in the bonus transmission, where the one girl, her one thing that she has is that she feels in control of her body, and that she never mm. gets pregnant because she's like, I just I will it that I will never get pregnant, and then yeah. she does and you see the milk coming out of her and she's looking at her own body betraying her and it's just, it's so sad and so horrifying. Mia Goth is the character there and she's really good in the film as well. Um, So yeah, gotta say, Claire Denis did not have to go off as hard as she did. uh, Yeah, Yeah, for real. (laughs) uh, In this like really horrifying, like class-based, very heavily on the sexual violence, like look at... um, society and i was like pretty blown away by it when i saw it tiff and then i saw it again with you and we played it at the theater and i was like man every time i watch it there's just a little bit more to pick up on yeah so i'm glad finally we were able to recommend high life out there because I, I saw this it could have been on my list last year oh but yeah but then i was like yeah. i'm saving it until more people have seen it so now 
fucking I hope you guys have seen it or watch it. But um, uh, well, speaking your of number two, the bodily functions and, and all that, the <laughs> lighthouse. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, this movie, man, the first time I watched it, um, I just really enjoyed more like the aesthetic mm-hmm. and uh, the performances are just a lot of fun. Uh, it, it has this cross between like total horror and and like almost slapstick comedy at times. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I just I absolutely adored it the first time. And then and then to go into these really cool abstract uh, ideas with the with the with the lighthouse itself connection with kind of his like uh, this the sexuality stuff he's dealing with mm-hmm. and then and then bringing in mythology with the mermaid and and some hints towards some Greek mythology. I think you were telling me it's similar to a story with uh, Prometheus, Prometheus where it's like, yes. and I think um, I could be getting this mixed up with, with another Greek uh, uh, mythological character, but there's a character that is, is uh, trying to get the answers from the gods mm-hmm. and, and he's not meant to. And right. I'm almost certain it's Prometheus, but I could be wrong. I can't, I mean, but Prometheus I still is the think... one who took the fire from the gods and took it down to earth and gave it to man. And then he was punished for doing that. Okay, that's, I think that's Prometheus. And I think that I, after watching it the second time, I connected that myth a mm. little bit more with the movie because... With the lighthouse light and yeah, stuff, yeah. trying to get it from Willem Dafoe. Because he says, like, he has lines where he's just like, you're hogging it all for yourself. Like, the answers, whatever it is. And essentially, Defoe's character is constantly saying, know your place. Uh, you've been here for a couple weeks. I've been here for 30 years. You know, I tend to the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And then there's this, like, and you can, you know, agree or disagree with, with how Defoe uh, uh, is, is viewing the, the situation as well as how Pattinson's viewing the situation. Because, I mean, I can empathize with Pattinson where it's like, you know, you're on this rock with a stranger. There's no human beings Who, around who's you. Who's your boss? Who's, yeah, like and you're, he's you're your not boss. On, you're There's not plenty on of that too. On him, where yeah. he's like, he's basically saying, look, I don't care if you think that this is clean. I don't think this is clean. And that <laughs> is what the hierarchy is. Right. And so I think this movie is kind of just, in a way, saying, um, it's like, know your place. Yeah. And whether or not you agree with it, I don't think really matters just because of like the, the situation that he's in. Mm-hmm. I kind of understand Defoe going like, you're going to be here for four weeks. Th- this is my station. I'm the boss. You just need to listen to me. You know, he yeah. even, and then we have Pattinson's, uh, uh, I watched are, it, it with subtitles this time, by the way. Cause I was like, there were certain things that I was just not catching up on when I watched it the first yeah, time. Yeah. And we, we should mention for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's Robert Pattinson, Willem Defoe. Oh, sure. Yeah. Manning a lighthouse in like 19th century New England, basically. Yeah, and uh, basically we have Pattinson slowly going mad, and then yeah, it's watching ca- it the second time, I realized shit. I think Defoe is also. Uh, going oh, they're both mad. going fucking yeah. crazy. It's just the first time I was more focused on Pattinson's mm-hmm. kind of uh, descent into madness because it seemed like Defoe had a more. It's like he understood what was going on a little more, but then we start to get really muddled where. It's uh, like Defoe is um, chasing him with an axe. And then literally a minute later after he stops chasing him, he mentions that he was being chased with the axe. Yeah. So then you're just like, wait, am, am I <laughs> fucking crazy? Are these guys crazy? And I think the whole film's trying to do that. And then, yeah. then at the same time, just kind of show the Prometheus uh, story of a mortal trying to get the knowledge of the gods. And once he even accomplishes that, uh, it's too much for him, and uh, he's basically thrown to uh, back to back to the normal land, you know, mm-hmm. where the humans are, and uh, then is punished. We'll say. So yeah, I do think that 
I could even get more out of it as I watch it. Because mm-hmm. um, there's still stuff. There's stuff that he correlates with, like, he connects um, Robertson's, Robert's past with... Uh, with a with a boy that he may or may not have killed mm. and then took that in name. Canada right yeah chopping yeah. down trees and shit yep yep and uh the accents are fucking just unbelievable in this amazing amazing yeah they're doing really goofy Melville affectations like Moby Dick yeah kind of stuff yeah, yeah it's great uh and then I also love the the horrifying the mermaid is horrifying to me yeah. like it, she's beautiful whoever they found the model is is absolutely beautiful um, but, but you mean like the, the design, the of, design because they like make the, it the very realistic. And, yeah. uh, and then also the, the sound design for her scream. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It just gets me. It really, it it's really chills me. That, that sure. scene where you just see her floating in the ocean. It's just her yeah. floating towards you. And Pattinson's just looking at it. And then she lets out that, that mermaid siren scream. I just, it honestly gets, gets, gives me chills. Yeah, um, that one. And for me, my favorite image is the one where it's naked Willem Dafoe using the lighthouse oh, um, for beam the out of his eyes and yeah. like hitting him in the face. And he's like, Whoa. yeah, I actually yeah. found a, a, a painting that they, they basically like ripped it from. I think I might've shown it to you, but. Oh yeah. That's gotta yeah. be, that's yeah. gotta be it. Like, holy shit. Is yeah. that like a, like kind of a it's classic old painting? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so, so like just, some of the images in it in particular, like the lens work, like what Robert Eggers' team with the production design and with the yeah, camera Yeah, they're trying to capture this like 18th century vibe, right? Yeah, well, and they, they basically went back to 1920s, like expressionist silent right. era films, basically for their their image making and stuff like that. And you can really tell that like the, the old film stock, the old lenses that they used, like mm. incredibly beautiful stuff in the, uh, the like uh, – square framing that they have yeah. there so yeah i think uh, i just i i fucking love this movie it, it the second time i just felt like i got more from it and i still feel like there's more to uncover so it's one of those films i know i'm gonna find myself just re-watching and showing people um and uh the last thing i'd say is uh pattinson's character um there's plenty of lines where he is talking about how he's never been able to stay on one post you yeah. know, he's like, never found someone to get a shine to or whatever. Yeah. And so I think that idea connects directly with the whole hierarchy thing again. Whereas, like, I don't think Defoe respects Pattinson's character because he's like, you, you move from one place to the next. And I've then been you here come forever. here. Yeah. And then you tell me that you deserve to see the light. Yeah. You know, you don't. You, you are, you're new. You, you need to stay in a place and have, uh, you need to commit to something. But that bit when he finally touches the light. Oh God! And, and then like, the distorted laugh and everything. Yeah. Oh my God! It's so fucking good. I, I, honestly, I'm probably gonna five star this movie eventually. Uh, it's just kind of—I I feel it in me. Um, Hell yeah! If you guys yeah. like the textures of like floorboards soggy with smelly bodily fluids, yeah. and then like giant squids that you're not quite sure are coming from which direction. The occasional homoerotic energy of. Yes. Uh, Two dudes stuck lo- together, getting drunk together Whether, every night. I love their relationship, what their their love hate relationship, where they're like just total brothers, and then at the same time they want to fucking just. They're kill also each in other. competition, and then also at one point they like try to kiss each other, and then they're like, no. <laughs> and then no. They, my favorite part is when they they almost kiss each other, and then to to counteract that act, they start physically fighting <laughs> each other. It's like, well, we can't have sex, so I'm just gonna beat the shit out of you. <laughs> And I just think that's so Or the one where they're yelling at each other at the top of their lungs and then it's a hard cut to them slow dancing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's so much of that. And then I love, like, it starts to get to this really aggressive, almost 
punk rock sailor Jerry shit yeah. where, where they're doing the work and they're just chugging rum to the point where most of it isn't even going in their mouth. <laughs> they're just letting it all go into it's so punk rock at a certain point. And uh, yeah. God damn it. I just I love this film. I love this movie. Yeah, this was pretty close to uh, to my list, list. And we did a bonus transmission on it, too, on the Patreon. Yeah. So if you want to hear even more about that, yes. again, go to over on the Patreon. Uh, but number one. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm doing the math here. Yep. Think we, Irishman? The Irishman. Irishman. All right. So Jamie I don't and I know just, how elab- <laughs> I don't know how much we have to elaborate on this one. We have an hour long review on this bad boy. Yeah. If you guys want to check like, it out, like we're we're gonna try. I'm gonna start timing us right now, and I'm not gonna let this go for this longer than a certain like amount of time. Two and a half, three hours. Because long. because when we did it on the Patreon, we were like, yeah, we're gonna go for 20 minutes, and we went for an hour. So yeah. I'm gonna stop us at a certain point here talking about the Irishman. We're gonna try and speed round it. But if you guys yeah. do want more talk on the Irishman, Patreon com slash Sleezoids podcast we did a full hour long discussion i don't think we missed yeah. anything on that no so we might mess up we, on here just because we, like we don't have as much time so jamie and i are going to use both of our mi- few minutes we got here and we're going to yeah. uh, i get like a five minute max we're going to try and summarize the irishman but it's number one movie for me um it was like the super five of of the year for me and i was just emotionally devastated by this film basically like the second i watched it the first time when jamie and i both saw it in the in the theater we were lucky enough to watch it for three and a half hours straight in a theatrical setting um it was amazing and um i just gotta say the way that this movie gets you into the headspace of frank sheeran played by robert de niro um, who eventually killed what was his closest friend, Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino, because uh, basically his bosses told him to, including Joe Pesci, who's playing Russell B- Buffalino. Um, and the way it gets you into the headspace of this guy who just lived through, and it traces five decades from the 1950s all the way until the early 2000s, of this guy who lived his entire life like it was work. That mm. he went into the army, he got desensitized to killing, and he got um, um, he, he learned that following orders was, you know, how he could climb the ranks. And then he gets added into the mob and he basically all of his relationships with the people around him are transactional in the way that his boss tells him to do something. He does it. He gets rewarded with, you know, financial yeah. success. And, you know, with financial success, he'll find a family. He'll have a home. He'll have all of this stuff. So he yeah. has everything. Yeah, it doesn't matter it, that it's directly connected to murder. <laughs> no. And and, and the, what's so scary about this film and the way Martin Scorsese directs it is he intentionally shoots it in a very non-stylish, very non-showy kind of style. The way that he told his editor and uh, Thelma Schoonmaker and um, his cinematographer, Rodrigo Prieto, was that he wanted to make it the anti-Goodfellas, that he wanted something that was not super um you got swept up in it he wanted something that reflected sharon's character that was super basic that was to the point that was workmanlike so that's the feeling that you get is watching a guy who is a total sociopath who doesn't feel anything um go through these super important moments in his personal life and in like the uh, the political life of the 1950s all the way to the 2000s and all of these situations happening like it doesn't mean very much and right. what you're watching is a film of an old man filled with regret recall these memories, um, realizing their impact later in life. And, and yeah, not like in- the scene with the nurse where it's just like, we don't even know who Jimmy Hoffa is. Yeah. And that was like his, that, that's, that's his life right there. Yeah. That's his legacy. And people don't even, they don't know about it. They don't care. Yeah. You know, it's just like, and, and he, and he kind of 
he, he realizes it all at once too, yeah. which is pretty devastating. And we, and we talked about on the bonus transmission, the way that Scorsese captures this, like the use of color. Like oh, I was yeah. talking about how Prieto for the fifties films, he used, um, I can't remember Kodachrome, I think it was. And then in the sixties and seventies, he used ectochrome film of amateur photography. So like blues and greens versus like the reds and yellows of the Kodachrome. Right. And then by the time they hit 2000, they did this very muted, desaturated digital yeah. Uh, so over the course of the film from the 1950s to the 2000s, the movie is literally drained of color and drained of life as Frank Sheeran's life just gets emptier and emptier and emptier. And the, the, it does it so subtly that like the character himself didn't realize it. He didn't yeah. realize that that's what was happening. And you're watching this and you're just sitting there in the point of view of a guy doing these terrible things like murdering people in these like very simple pans and this thing where he's describing it where he's like, you know, I like to go to the washroom before I do a kill just, you know, uh, because I don't want to be uncomfortable. And like, yeah. he's talking about fucking killing someone. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah. He's just talking about how hey, you got to piss first. You yeah. Know? You gotta, can't be uncomfortable. Yeah. So <laughs> like you're shooting someone in the head and the way that it merges that with, and how Robert De Niro, who plays it very internal, very subtle, very like, he doesn't quite know how to express himself at one point. Al Pacino is even like, you know, you're kind of quiet. I don't know what, I don't know what you're feeling. <laughs> Whereas Al Pacino is so full of personality and life and he's yeah. yelling and he's such a presence in the film that the second he's not in the film, you really do feel like the film has lost something. Yeah. Um, and it's true. Like they don't, they don't, they paint almost every, if not, not even almost, I think every gangster character as completely stoic and boring. Yeah. With this time around where, you know, we are used to more casino, good fellows, whatever. But now this time around, they gave it to Jimmy Hoffa. They gave it to the politician. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. And again, the way that, you know, there's, you know, Robert De Niro's like daughter Peggy in the film who very clearly sees Buffalino and sees her dad as, you know, people who put on this friendly facade of being like yeah. good father figures, but who are actually, you know, like these terrible people dealing out violence behind the scenes and one scene, not even behind the scenes where he just like in front of her basically yeah. just like almost kills a she, man. She, she speaks up to him and then he inflicts violence because of it. And then people wonder why she doesn't have yeah, many lines. I she love that. Talk that's to him. the last, it's like, that's but, the last time he talked, she talked to him basically. Yeah. Until like, the thing where she says, why? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah, because um, she knows. Yeah, she knows. And that's that. a devastating moment uh, just because it's like it, – because it's everything that we've seen before. Finally, Jenny gets to the point – or Peggy, Jenny. <laughs> Peggy gets to the point where um, you're, she just has to confront him. You know, yeah. it's like there's – at a certain point because it's Jimmy. It's like so, so you're such a fucking monster that you killed the family friend, the one that also I am most connected with. Yeah. You know, like like – like, like when they're That's eating the Sundays thing. together and when like Peggy knows that Jimmy, like he works for the community, he works for the workers, like he's respectable. Kind I also of think like Peggy, I don't know if Pe Peggy necessarily thought this, but the way I saw it was like Jimmy was at least some little connection that they could have where it's like, you know, Robert De Niro's character is best friends with him. Mm -hmm. He loves Peggy. So there's something there that could at least they, be they connected both, They both love Jimmy. And yeah. then he kills the one last tiny connection that he had with Peggy. Yeah. And it's just like, Leaves it, his it, it just shows that he, ha that everything was just a, just a job, you know, like there wasn't really a lot of emotion, even though there's hints of it, which I like, like, it seems like Robert De Niro, uh, holds Jimmy, uh, just a second longer before he's about to kill him in the, in the car yeah. when they have a greeting hug. 
And so there's small little things where it's like well, maybe even, he has even, some emotion. And, 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 and even the jokes that they share, like the one where he calls the he calls the guy like a whopper. whopper. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and and Robert De Niro's being <laughs> like he's, he's he's being like, dude, like clearly he's being like, why would you say that? But at the same time, like well, he's he laughing. thinks it's really funny. He laughs while he's like, come on, Jimmy. <laughs> it's so good because he enjoys it so much, but he knows like what should be done and, and all that. But he just, he lets himself go with Jimmy. I, I, yeah, I loved it. It's like the only time that he shows any like real human side to him is when he was with Jimmy. Right. Because he, he loves hanging out with Jimmy yeah. and then, yeah, he's, he's put into the hit against Jimmy and then you watch him kill the only thing in his, his life that he basically loved Yeah, because his boss told him to. And yeah. then, and he, and the way that Scorsese films it, where he just goes through the motions, it's completely silent. It's completely bare. Like, there's no crazy camera moves. It's just Robert De Niro in the car, brings Al Pacino into the house, pops him in the head. Yep. And Al Pacino, up until the second he died, didn't think that Robert that De Niro was, was even capable of that. That was the craziest part, where he looks at the empty house and doesn't think that that's the that guy. That the gun behind him it is going to It couldn't possibly be him. Yeah. He's like, just, come on, let's go. That's the saddest part, man, for sure. And then yeah, the final hour of the film, which I think is just the maybe the best thing Grizzly's ever directed, which is just that slow decay oh, yeah. and sink into the dirt, basically, where Robert De Niro, it's a one-hour or maybe not even an hour, it's like a 45-minute coda on the film yeah. where all you get to experience is Frank Sheeran's body fail him. He's, like, falling over. He's got to get crutches. He's got to go into the nursing home. Joe Pesci, uh, watching him Watching age, him in prison and then also with each other. realize he's, he's learned nothing from the whole situation yep. where it's like, this is where I wanted us to get to. Yeah. Fuck them. <laughs> and, and you're sitting there going, this is like all of those brutal things that you did so that you guys could survive because he chose them. Yeah. It's like, this so is you what you did it for. Cell. Yeah. So that you could both just sit there and have your bread and grape juice. Yeah. And uh, Joe Pesci's got like the fake teeth. He's got a little handshake. He can't yeah. even quite eat oh, it. Oh, man. And it, it's a plea that he and Frank were like actually friends and not just employer and employee, but he yeah. clearly never felt the same way about Pesci as he did about Pacino. Right. And uh, same with the reverse. Like, Pesci never really actually treated... The first thing he does after he makes him kill Hoffa is make him do another hit, which is a bad hit against the right. uh, the one guy who didn't even have to be killed. It was just a, an internal miscommunication that resulted yep. in that guy's death, and Frank Sheeran had to be the one to do it. So again, just the that that really scary meaninglessness and that lack of 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 soul to mm. it, and very intentional, is just really scary to watch. And then you know, Robert De Niro having to go and buy his own coffin because none of his family <laughs> even talks Great to him. Great scene by Action Bronson as well. Yeah. Shout out to Bronson because that this is like is the Cadillac, so, <laughs> the Cadillac and coffins, man. <laughs> you see anything you like? Oh. Yeah. Great scene, yeah. Uh, and again, then just, you know, like the final scene of the film, which we talked about on the bonus transmission, but where you just get that shot of Robert De Niro completely alone in the hospital being like, it, it's Christmas. And Scorsese's fake out. Like the, the one where it's like, here's the last shot. Nope, we're going to do one more close up of him. Maybe something will be, maybe an epiphany will happen. Nothing. Shot back. He's alone in the room, cut yeah. to black. Where he tells just, him to leave the door whew. ajar, which we I realized on the second watch was the same way that Jimmy slept. Yeah. So Jimmy Hoffa, when he sleeps for the first night with Al Pacino, Robert De Niro in the same 
hotel room, Jimmy always sleeps with the door ajar cracked open. And you can actually, on rewatches, you can see the shot of Robert De Niro looking at him through the crack in the door. Yeah. And being yeah. like, I'm here to protect him. So sure. at the end of his life, when no one's talking to him, he's telling the priest to keep the door ajar because he's still thinking about Jimmy at the end of his life, whether he feels sorry or whether he really understands what the gravity of what he's done, like subconsciously it's still there and it's just soul crushing. It's so (laughs) it's a devastating gangster movie. It's so completely sad. (laughs) Uh, like the, there, there really is like a haunting, like grief and guilt overall to the film. It's a very mature movie. Yeah. So I just felt that it it's really the way that it captures that emptiness and really disturbingly renters the, you know, the idea of a guy who doesn't feel things correctly is just yeah. like really, really uh, like a beautiful but incredibly sad <laughs> to yeah. watch. So it, it had to be the number one. I watched this movie yeah, like too. three or four times this year and it's yeah. three and a half hours long. Yeah, so, you know, it, it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was the number one film of 2019 genre we did it and we again it. i feel Big like old episode. I, f- I feel like that still wasn't enough talk about the irishman yeah but go, if you want more yeah patreon.com slash sleezoids podcast it was the last bonus transmission we did in december there we went yeah. for an hour and, and we honestly, went into like, more I'll, detail like half these movies we have kind of more full reviews on so if you guys are interested yeah uh, if any of the titles we talked about today you want to hear more about there's likely a bonus transmission likely, where we yeah. talked for Most like you know between 15 minutes to half an hour on each one kind of deal yeah so if you want to hear any of those again patreon.com slash podcast but that will wrap it up for this bonus transmission for you guys uh this week we are going to be back in um Wait, this isn't a bonus transmission. What am I talking about? That was the end of the the year episode, but we are now going to be resuming regular scheduled programming for the rest of 2020. Um, Oh, baby. So, happy two years of Sleezoids. Yeah. We are going to be uh, jumping in next week with the the bonus episode for the Patreon listeners. And that bonus episode is going to be, uh, last week we did uh, They Live in Repo Man. Uh, which was their voted episode for episode number 100. So for episode 102, next week, we decided we were going to do their second highest voted double feature, which was a John Woo double feature of uh, The Killer from 1989 and Hard Boiled from 1992. So that's what you can expect in one week's time. Again, patreon.com slash podcast for that episode. It's exclusively over there. Uh, But in two weeks' time, we are going to be back with a special guest, and we are going to be talking about Bayham. Yes. There is a new Bad Boys movie coming out called Bad Boys for Life, I think. So nice. we are going to be talking about the original Bad Boys. And then we are also going to be talking about uh, Bad Boys 2. And I have brought on a guest who uh, really, really loves Bad Boys 2 and is going to make the argument that is like a vulgar, oturist masterpiece. So I honestly, I think I might like it more this time around. I I'm definitely them, excited to rewatch it. Yeah, I watched them like a couple years ago uh, when we were kind of beginning all this stuff. And I feel like the sleaze You've is going to yeah, capture oh, yeah. me a little more this time. That's true. I mean, if you liked Six Underground, I have, from my memory, Bad Boys 2 is just as crazy. But Yeah, like, I but, know that I but, at least but, three Bad Boys but 2. But more practical and less plastic than yeah. what Six Underground kind of looks like. For sure. So they I, at least try to be empathetic to the human body a little bit. <laughs> well, except for when they're running over those the corpses. Dead, no, but those are dead people, so it's totally fine. It's fine. I'm sure that's what Michael Bay's, like, connect. He probably uh, made that excuse, I'm sure, where he's like, yeah, but they're they're dead. 
Totally so it's fine. not like, yeah, it's not disrespectful at all. Totally fine. God, babe. <laughs> all right. Well, that will wrap it up. Insane, we're going to leave because this was a super long episode. Yeah, holy I'm, shit. I'm getting drowsy. Yeah, I'm uh, tired. <laughs> we are going to uh, something something episodes in the future. Yeah, that was what I, That's what I was just saying. <laughs> Plenty of stuff's coming your way, folks. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something or other. Keep it sleazy. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it sleazy, y'all. Enjoy that three hours. <laughs>